Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1332 to 1355. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1332. Story number one. Humanity's War Songs, written by Wendertoast. Humanity is an oddity amongst the galactic trade community. They are militaristic, but will cling to peace for as long as possible. On several occasions, I have seen the United Human Front take bad deals and concessions in stride, all in the name of preserving peace. They have rarely used their military for much more than anti-pirate action than peacekeep, only stepping in when species are threatened with extermination. Due to this, they are viewed as some of the best mediators in the GTC. This strange behavior is what drew me into becoming a Xeno-historian. My species, the Rygaxians, were known as the Galaxy's Peacekeepers. My species are what the humans described as Minotaurs, a monster from their mythology. Though the Nakli do not see us as monsters, we are even tempered and fair but are more than willing to go to war. I believe the humans refer to it as speak softly and carry a big stick. I quite like that saying. My time in university was enlightening. I was fortunate enough to qualify for an exchange program and was sent to a human university on the first planet that they colonized, Alpha Centauri. While there, I mingled with humans from countless cultural backgrounds but found something in common with all of them. They had all lost family in one war or another. Fathers, brothers, uncles, sisters, aunts, grandparents, and great-grandparents, all humans I had talked to had lost someone their life. This revelation made me dig deeper into humanity's history and culture, stumbling across the many war songs. Now, every non-passive species has war songs, but humanity was different. Their songs did not glorify war. They abhorred it. My roommate Kyla introduced me to several of these songs. They were ancient, coming on what he called compact discs, and required ancient hardware to play. Yet, the quality was still phenomenal. The first song that he played me when I asked about human war songs was called One by the band Metallica. The premise of the song still causes existential dread within me to this day. It even influenced me to fill out what humans call a DNR, ensuring that I would never end up like the subject of the song. He then showed me Passchendaele by Iron Maiden. The only way I could describe it was the desperate ballad of a dying soldier. These two songs alone both brightened me, yet intrigued me, pushing me to look further that's when I started asking around my dormitory, seeing if anyone was willing to sit down and share with me. To my surprise, people were more than willing to share, showing just how friendly these primates were. The next people to share with me was Elizabeth and Maggie. They shared songs from their small countries, starting with extremely ancient ones. The song was from what they referred to as the First World War and was sung from the perspective of a grieving mother, proclaiming that I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. The song proclaims that mothers didn't raise their boys to take some other mother's darling boy, and that there wouldn't be any war if mothers had to say 
The next song that they shared was from a period of the collective history known as The Troubles, a period of religious and political hostility between two groups. The song The House of Orange is a very passionate call for peace. The last person I talked to was named Mikhail and came from one of the former superpowers on the home planet of Earth. The things he showed me forever soured my honorable view of war. He showed me music videos that had been saved from humanity's old data network before it was wiped out during the third and final world war. The videos he showed me churned my stomachs. I watched as boys no older than us were piled like firewood in the back of trucks and mass graves. I had charred bodies, their dead eyes staring back at me. Of a vehicle crew taking their brother in arms out of the back of their tank. His mangled leg dagged as they carried him out. Of corpses littering the streets as buildings smolder in the background. I asked him what war caused this and what he told me made my jaw drop. These videos were not from war but as an assault on a single city. The song was aptly named Soldiers Are Not Born. He later played me a radio communications from this assault, and the pure desperation within them made my eyes tear up. The first one he played me was a radio conversation between opposing commanders, with the defender begging the attacker to not sacrifice his men's lives in a pointless attack. He begged the attacker to come as a friend, and that if they met in battle, he would not show mercy. Mikhail told me that attacking commander and all his men were wiped out within 60 hours. All of these songs painted a vivid picture of humanity's view of war. They awe hit, but that left me with another question. If they have such a strong distaste for war, then why have they such a large standing army? On the scale of things that they could easily stand toe-to-toe with us in every way, yet they were hesitant to use it. After university, I became my people's cultural advisor on the topic of humans, and thanks to the privileges that came with this position, I was allowed to access the many archives that humanity held. Unlike most species of the galaxy, they did not possess a clear history of their past, much of it being wiped out in what they called the Third World War. Due to the fission weapons used, though they say there was limited amount compared to what they could have unleashed, many of their digital and physical archives were lost. This would have spelled death for a species if it had not been for the generational ship sent to Alpha Centauri mere decades before. The history I read, and the many more songs I listened to, only made me more confused. I found many songs calling men to arms, though it was explained to me that they were propaganda songs. My questions were soon answered by an old senator that's father had been alive during what the humans called the Phoenix Years. He told me an old human adage, Sivus Pacem Parabellum. He told me that it translates to, If you wish for peace, prepare for war. This phrase finally answered the questions I still held. Men of Story Story number 2 Simple Precautions, written by Sparrowhawk. Twin trails blazed orange fire across the afternoon sky, as if sunbeams were frozen in place behind the distant ship, stark neon against the dark clouds. They had watched it for several minutes, pausing their farm work to bear witness to the ship's approach. Sweat still prickled their skin. The village elder had called for Roy, 
so that the former soldier would hazard a guess to the intentions of the uninvited guest. Orange beam streak, twin cylinder thrust Yamari Alcaron C3 engines, modified cargo hold, looks like extended. He handed the binoculars back to the elder, rounding. The assembled villagers crowded close, waiting for his judgment with eager dread. When did we lose contact with Farhope? asked Roy. Two weeks ago, about. And Claretown? Last Thursday, weren't it? The ship was getting closer. Its angular shape could now be barely made out. Bizarrely, molded colored. It looked almost like stacks of shipping containers fused together. Had my wings extended to save fuel out of vacuum. Roy sighed heavily. That's the reason right there. Slaver ship, very likely. Coyuvan, perhaps. Or maybe even Haranzararizi. Suspicions confirmed. The expressions of the villagers ranged from sickly fear to cold fury. Life on the edge of colonized space had its risks. Korgov Navy couldn't intercept every greedy alien slaver looking to make easy money, hitting easy targets. This one was greedier than most, going for a settlement hat-trick while it had a chance in atmosphere, like a fox grabbing chickens while the father slept. What can we do, Roy? the elder asked, where the creases in his lined face deepening to set in a determined expression, putting a bold act in an attempt to give the villagers courage. They approach in broad daylight, already having hit two other settlements, mused Roy. Confident like, they'll be heavily armed for sure, I won't expect resistance. The villagers hung on his every word, desperately united in the face of the alien threat. All and young, they stood together. Roy looked to his family, wife and daughter, mimicking the elder's determined face, daring to hope, hoping for an answer. All right. Chagask prepared the ship for landing. His headache had faded at last. The cargo had finally fallen silent. No doubt that they would kick up again as soon as they added a lot to the hold, though. Human captures were almost more trouble than they were worth. Almost. At 10,000 credits per person, Chagask could put up with a little shouting. Landing preparations complete. Checks complete. Would you like to proceed with landing? Yes, yes, Chagast responded to the computer. He made his way down to the landing bay, where the rest of the crew had gathered. Guns ready, lads, he roared, slotting his scratched exoskeleton into place, bone plate sliding into position around four black eyes. The ships landed just outside the village. The fourteen of them walked up the hill through fertile farmland abandoned half-tilled. A dog ran up to them, snarling, fierce, jaw-snapping. Chagask fed it with a tungsten slug. Railgun coolidge vapor curled up around him, making him seem a supernatural specter come to bring ruin. Laughing, the village was silent. <laughs> Humans! Chagask relied on his translator to get the message across. His crew blasted holes through primitive brick and mortar. You! have two options. Get out here and kneel or we will drag your corpses out. They walked into the village center. There was a small square and a town hall. A cloud cover broke, shining sunlight pouring through the highlight of a group in gold. Chagast stopped. What the fuck are the... Half a mile away, Roy pushed the detonator. The microfusion mines that he'd planted a decade ago took it instantly. Neutrons fired at uranium-235 caused an exponential reaction, opening, for a brief moment, the gates of hell on the hilltop. Within a millisecond of detonation, the village was vaporized. The villagers crowded around Roy, 
praising his foresight. The mines, the escape tunnel, all had been his idea at the founding of the village. And you all called me paranoid, <laughs> said Roy, laughing. But the village, the farmland, we're alive, free. Come, let's go release the captures from the ship. We can rebuild again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1333. Story number one. Human Ships, written by Roaring Beard Dragon. Grandoc swilled his optical organs to target the vessel in front of him. The slight noise of Kaiden grinding on Kaiden emitted as he did so. The ship in question was the Forgefather. The Forgefather was a human mining ship with built-in refineries to process gathered ore. Grandoc had always found human ships strange. It was not that they were elegant or styled, or that they had too much. Rather, they had both style and elegance, while remaining totally practical with little exterior decoration. The ship in particular had no exterior decoration whatsoever. The Forge Father was a huge titanium rectangle, with huge mouth of tractor beam drills and mining lasers on the front. Human ships were some of the few in the galaxy with front and back, and a large array of thrusters and other propulsion devices on the back. On all other faces of the vehicle were various doors, hatches, and ramps for entering and exiting the craft, and I was about to enter. I was guided in by a human female with brown fur and skin. They spoke to me before we entered. Hello, Inspector. My name is Sasha, and I'm here to take you to our captain. So be it, human... Let us enter, I reluctantly said. Redaxians are capable of speaking most human tongues, so I do not need a translator. Besides, this smelled more natural. My legs clinked on the metal floor of the airlock through which we entered, as I attached the breathing aids necessary to survive in human safe oxygen. With a faint hiss, the airlock finished its work, and we were released into the bare metal corridor with a ramp at the opposite end. Once we climbed the ramp, I was taken through several similar corridors to the bridge. Greetings, Inspector. The human male spoke as I entered. He had hair of a similar color to Sol, the star of the human home system, and his skin was pink, though to me and all other Vodaxians it was the color of our home star, red. Greetings, human. My name is Grundok. Today I shall carry out my duty and survey your ship, as is custom for a stay for three human souls or greater. I drawled professionally. Please give me a tour. Well, the human captain replied, my name is Andrew, and first of all, this is a bridge, a center point where the majority controls are located. Yes. I know that, I hissed. On to the next room. Throughout my inspection, I became increasingly worried. It appeared human ships were most definitely not designed for safety above all else, like the ships of every other species. But that couldn't be correct, right? In the end, I expressed many doubts, not truly expecting a reply. But the reply simply made me worried. Human, that's not a reactor, that's just... A cleverly disguised bomb leaking power. Oh, yes, that's just a nuclear fission reactor. Don't worry about it. But 
That's nothing like a fission reactor. It doesn't have the safety beams. And, human, you mean to say that these toxins and bioweapons are your food? Um, yeah. There's a coffee and chili powder. Roughly one rack sack later, I finished my inspection, after which I was taken to the bridge and asked my verdict. Though I allowed their stay, as they technically hadn't broken any rules, I immediately sent a message to Station Command asking for one, me to never ever inspect a human ship again, and two, for all humans to be placed in separate hangar to other species to avoid our imminent death. End of story. Story number two. The Cold of the Void, written by Echoing Cascade. Death Welder. The word strikes fear into all who hear it. When humanity was discovered, almost every military in the known galaxy wanted them for their ground troops, and those who didn't started working on countermeasures. Captain Sirk was a Corsair, a legal pirate for his race, Tharis. The Tharis were the go-to mercenaries in most armed conflicts. They had, through extensive genetic manipulation, the ability to adapt to nearly any environment. Yet, the average human was sturdier, faster, and all-round a better soldier than Theris could ever hope to be, to the point that an augmented human warrior was the equivalent of a light tank. He had been given the unenviable task to bring a live sample for study. The Theris were not the first to try this. A gobble species had tried to kidnap humans with violent and messy results. They tried to capture them in groups or drug single individuals, mused Corsia, Captain. Bad idea. They seem to forget why they are trying to get the subject, but I figured something they didn't. You don't actually need an adult. Sirk had come up with a simple and ingenious plan. Find a small vessel loaded with human hatchlings with no more than one or two adults. Tractor said vessel inside the cruiser's cargo hold and use the hatchlings as leverage to keep the adults in check until he can bring them all back to the testing facility. I can even kill the adults if things get out of hand. Foolproof. That had been his thinking two hours ago. Now he was hearing the screams of his crew on every channel through his communicator. What in the five hells is going on? There were no life signs other than the ones for the humans, and they were all here with me. He looked at the adult human female, who had been reassuring the hatchlings since their capture. What's going on? Who is doing this? The look she gave him faded the pause. She looked at him with pity. Lady teacher, they don't know remorse or mercy, but I pray they kill you quick. He knew there was something he missed and something changed. Something horrible had happened. The screams had stopped. If I can make it to the escape pod, I may have a chance. He thought of taking one of the crying hatchlings with him, but something told him that it would not be wise. As he left the human vessel, he was met with total darkness inside the cargo hold. He thought of using his portable light, and then he felt something squishy at the front. Something familiar. Something that should be alive. I can make my way to the escape pods in total darkness. The ship has been my home for many, many rotations. With some luck, whatever did this can't see in the dark. That's a bet that you would lose. The voice came from nowhere and everywhere at the same time. Sirk froze. He hadn't said a word. 
The only reason that you still in one piece is the fact that you didn't take a kid with you. Uh, uh, what do you want? Go to your ship's bridge and release our vessel back to space unharmed. How, how would you get it back if you're not inside your vessel? The creature in the darkness responded with an audible smile. I am inside the ship. Siak made slow progress to the bridge. He wouldn't dare to turn on the lights, even after he almost slipped on what could only be the blood of his men. He could feel something huge move around him, something larger than what the room he was in should be able to contain. It would take a while to get the bridge in these conditions, and eventually fear made place to curiosity. What are you? We have had many names, imaginary friends, recurring dreams... Guardian angels. Turk felt hot breath by his side. He slowly turned, unable to breathe or close his eyes. He didn't see the thing per se, only saw two red eyes, larger than he was tall and row after row of fangs, aligned to form a cruel smile. Bits and pieces of his crew still stuck here and there. But we prefer <laughs> nightmares. Sirk couldn't look away. It took everything he had to keep from fainting, and his next words nearly cost him a heart attack. That's not can't real. The creature closed its eyes and seemingly disappeared. Sirk could breathe again and fell down. He promptly vomited the contents of his stomachs. We didn't always take form like this. Back when humans were religious, fearful, and ignorant, did we manage to take shape here and there? Not everyone who walked in the dark made it back alive. Siak could feel the creature smile. He was trying to get up, but his legs refused. The creature sighed. Then uh, they got into science. The fear diminished, and with that, our power waned. Siak felt a hand down the size of a shuttle gently grip him and lift him to his feet. But one day, they made it to the stars, and the endless void brought back fear. A fear that was born long ago, when the first primate mistook a shadow for a predator out to kill it. The fear of the dark. Sirk began to walk again. He could barely hear the creature over his own heart pounding in his chest. We could take form again. We prepared to feast of human flesh. And yet, Sirk had made it to the stairs that would bring him to the bridge. He heard a large amount of what he didn't want to identify be shuffled out of his way. We didn't want to return to being nothing more than ideas after we had our fill. So we struck a bargain. We each protect a child until they come of age, and they don't try and find a way to get rid of us. Sirk was now in front of the bridge door. It opened automatically, and the lights turned on. To his shock and relief, he was immaculate as ever. We still get our full, but just not human meat. Sirk shuddered and started the procedure to free the human vessel, and then he stopped. 
Will you let me live if I do this? Of course, I won't lay a finger on you. Zirk had no real choice, and he let the ship out of his cargo bay. He didn't hear so much as felt goodbye by the creature. He sighed and prepared a course for Theris territory. But then the lights went off. The last thought that went through his head before facts, claws, hands and tentacles tore the flesh off his bones was he said they each protect a hatchling and the ship had six of them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1334 Story number one A prayer written by Despair If any gods are real there if there's anyone out there who cares we beg you Save us now. The Gondani have come for us. They brought mass drivers. They plan to slaughter us. We can't hold them off much longer. Please help. The current distress signal, if it can be so called, went out in all directions. The Gondani themselves received it. And they laughed as they maneuvered their fleets into final killing position. Until a single jump point opened terrifyingly close to Kern homeworld. The jump point, that low gravitational potential, sent out a shock wave that knocked the fleet from its orbit. The Contani ships were warships, and they were not so easily shaken. They applied countermeasures and returned to their positions. A single ship emerged from the jump point and broadcast a general message. This is Captain Lancer of the human battlecruiser Tamlin. We will not permit the use of mass drivers against civilian targets. The Contani Admiral replied, What business is this of yours? The protection of civilians is everyone's business. We do not intervene in our ordinary wars, but when a crime is too terrible, there is no need for jurisdiction. Our philosophers have spent a lot of words on this subject, but when it comes to mass drivers in cities, they can be summed up in just two. Never again. And you think you can stop me with one ship? Aboard this ship of 500 small fighters, each piloted by a veteran, a real veteran of real wars against real armies, not merely experienced in murdering the helpless. But if that isn't enough, and you destroy us, it'll be the last thing your empire ever does. Our government will uphold what I am doing today. If you destroy a human warship that was trying to prevent an atrocity, we'll see this as an act of war against us. Do you have access to historical archives? Look up the Gavlad Empire. Look at how big they were, how long they lasted. Then see if you can find the video of their last emperor begging for our mercy. We gave him a quick death. It was better than what he deserved. The tension-filled radio silence stretched to a minute, and then to another. Captain Lenzer didn't say anything more. He hardly breathed. If the Kern had anything to add, they kept it off of their radios. The Kantari presumably were checking the history tanks and discussing amongst themselves. And then the Kantari formed their own jump points and were gone. Shortly thereafter, the Kern president opened up a private channel. Thank you so much. We, we can never never fully repay you. Ah, oh, are you gods? Captain Lancelot. No, we're people. Not too different from you, really. We've just been through more. Why did you risk yourselves for us? Because 50 years ago, we were in roughly the same place you found yourselves today. 
except with the Govlad instead of the Cantadi. The Govlad were more conquerors than destroyers, but we lost millions in the initial invasion anyway. And then the rest of us were enslaved. I started my military career in the resistance. I was little more than a child. And I prayed, and I prayed to every god that I'd ever heard of, and as best as I could to the ones I hadn't. I prayed that there'd be someone, anyone, in this galaxy who stood up to the oppressors, who stood up for the innocents and for the weak, who cared. Then, one day, the factory guards were lax, and I managed to steal an FTL radio, and I sent out a general distress call, much like yours. And in response, in response, nothing. Just the cold, dark, silent, uselessness of empty space. But I dragged a transmitter to a resistance hideout in the tunnels beneath what had been one of our best technical universities. I thought maybe our physicists would reverse engineer it, figured out how FTR worked. They did something better. They got onto the Govlad automated network and started poking around for vulnerabilities. It was a real turning point for us. The day we found a buffer overrun in their weapon system was a good day. The day we kicked them off our homeworld was a really good day. The day we executed the Emperor, that was a good day too. But today... Today, my childhood prayer is finally answered. Today, there exists someone... Who cares? End of story. Story number two. The Heaven's Scroll, written by Daemic. Written in the blood of the first god, the Heaven's Scroll determined the fate of each soul. It gave the lesser Fantians dominion over the living, and it was both the strength and weakness of the gods. But not every man was content with having his fate written. Since the moment of its creation, mortals have tried to steal the scroll. The gods treated this as another game, as a chance to toy with the inferior souls that crawled and died. Then, one succeeded, using their arrogance against them. The man smiled his way into the upper realms. He thieved the heaven's scroll, and he tried to destroy it. He failed with each attempt. The words of the gods are not easily broken. Unable to fulfill his first goal, and with the full might of heaven working against him, the man was able to indulge in only one act of defiance. With his own blood, he crossed out his name. From then on, the man gained many titles. The Definer, the God's Bane, the Chosen, the Liar! Yet the gods, with all their power, could only refer to him by one. To them, he was the Nameless. Donations, shouted Era, holding up a basket. Donations for God of pleasant fortune, bronze for the good day, silver for a good year, and gold for a good life. Everyone, from guildsmen to slaves, crowded into the streets to celebrate their rest day. Several were feeling generous enough to toss her a coin or two. May the gods give you fortune, she responded, raising her hand in blessing. The people parted as a blue smocked priest strode down the streets, and Era ducked into an alley. With a smile, she counted her coins. The day had just begun, but she'd already made enough for a day's bread. Of course, none of the money would actually go to the temple's coffers. Aram wasn't a priest. She wasn't even an altar girl. Once the real priests left, Aram returned to a spot by the side of the road. 
The gods smile on the giving. Arrow winked at a particularly attractive and wealthy boy. He walked by without even a glance. Undeterred, she continued her chant, scanning the crowd for potential customers. Hera met the gaze of an old man, and she faltered at her reaction. He'd been standing by the same cart for nearly an hour. If he'd been one of the regulars, Hera wouldn't have minded. She knew them well, and everyone on the streets watched out for each other. This man was a stranger, and he'd been observing her for an uncomfortably long time. The man had seen her avoid the priests. Did he know? Was he from one of the holy orders, or worse, was he one of the gods' own servants? A coin a day keeps the demons away, Eric called out, rallying. She was being paranoid. It was probably all coincidence. Obviously, the man had to prove her wrong by crossing the street. He pushed through the crowd, his eyes locked on her and her basket. Eric tensed. Running now would be a clear sign of guilt, but remaining here was risking being caught. She shifted from foot to foot. Hera had bluffed her way out of more than one sticky situation. She decided to stay. The man had made it through the throng, and he now stood in front of her, arms crossed. Despite his dark eyes and shawl, he didn't seem angry. If anything, he looked amused. And you, sir? Hera smiled brightly at him. Do you wish for some good luck? He was quiet for so long that Eren's new confidence had started to falter. Luck, he said finally. His voice was rough, but surprisingly gentle. Yes, I've been in need of that. With the stiff, slow movements, the man reached into his sash and pulled out a coin. He dropped it into a basket, and Eren gasped. The coin was gold. May we both make our own fortunes. Error barely blinked at the odd turn of phrase, too preoccupied with the immense wealth she now had. Error hadn't prayed for eight years and she wasn't about to start again, but she came damn close. Thank you, she murmured. Error blinked back tears, thinking of everything she could do with the sudden windfall. Her life and her sisters and her nephews, no one would go hungry for years. The man dug back into the street and was lost in the river of people. Harris smiled. She didn't think the gods were looking out for her, but clearly, someone was. Death to traitors! Death to heretics! yelled the cloud. Dry-eyed, Error stared back. She didn't regret it. A rock hit her shoulder, but she refused to cry out. Error couldn't move, even if she wanted to. A thread, goddess's hair, they called it, bound her arms, legs, and mouth. Each time she tried to break it, it grew tighter. It had already scored a deep red lines into her flesh. Blood seeped into a white shift. Slowly, she ducked her head, defiance turning to exhaustion. The crowd pushed closer, spitting and screaming. I won't offend you by saying it's my fault. A deep, familiar voice startled her into looking up, but my involvement couldn't have been helped. Her eyes widened. Standing a foot from her was a man, the same one. Who'd gifted her the coin? Hera opened her mouth, forgetting the goddess's hair, and the thread pulled tighter. They've always been arrogant, he said softly, stepping forward. If they used chains or even rope, it wouldn't be this easy. He bent down. Prepare to run! With a single, rude movement, the man broke the thread. He grabbed her arm, and they both ran to one place the crowd didn't fill. The din ceased 
and the echo of footsteps and marble stairs filled the silence. Era and the man ran into the temple. Priests shouted to cast their spells, but each flare of light dissipated on them like water and stone. Era's blood left a trail as they bolted across the pristine floor. The eyes of the temple statues burst with light and life, and Era knew that she would now... The world shifted, and the two of them now stood in an empty field. The man fell to his knees, panting. His shawl had fallen away in their escape, displaying the red circle burned into his cheek. You're him, she whispered, the defier. He didn't meet her eyes, instead looking into the distance. She followed his gaze to see the ruins of the grey city, Beria, destroyed in recompense for his sin. What would you have done? He said raspily. What? What would you have done had I not arrived? Reiterated the man, louder this time. Hera opened her hand, revealing a shard of glass that someone had thrown at her. Her hand was cut and raw from holding it. Picking it up had caused the thread to dig so deeply in the first place. I'd have killed myself. She looked at the man until he finally faced her. I'd rather die than be twisted for the gods. The man stared at her for a long moment. Then he smiled. How would you feel about killing them instead? And thus begins the story of Era, the Butcher of the Gods. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1335 Story number one. War is worse than hell, and the people in it are worse than the war. The only thing worse than all of that, a good person in a war. Written by Cal Bynes. The human strolled into the bar somehow without a care in the world. The bartender warily taking his order as the volume in the bar lowered to a hush, quick whispers. The human slowly nursing each drink before a group of Buchan began moving over, him noticing it in the reflection of the glasses behind the bar. Taking a long, slow sip before putting down the glass and ordering another, he turned to the group behind him. So, human... What the hell are you doing here? The lead Buchan asked. Having a drink, he responded, matching the harsh stare as he sipped the new drink. If we weren't on the station, we would beat you to a pulp just like we're going to do once we get deployed. What do you think about that, human? The Buchan spat as he goaded the human. Behind him, the rest of his group hyping him up. I guess you'd probably be right. Say, uh, you haven't been deployed, have you? You're all recruits, ain't you? The human asked, standing up after he finished the next drink, putting the credits down for a round as he leveled with the group. Yeah, don't mean that we can't beat you out to a pub, the leader said, the confident voice faltering at Dad. You know what this tattoo means, friend, the human said, lifting up his sleeve as he grabbed the order of drinks. On his arm, a fist-sized tattoo, a steel box with blood-red angel wings adorning its side. The banner underneath only said... The first. The bar had a sun and chill run over it. The first. They were the first human drop pod crew. Their casualty on entry was atrocious, but those that made it through more than made up for it on the other side. If you saw the first dropping, your fate was all but sealed. Don't worry, my fighting days are long behind me. All I'm here is for a drink and a tale, if that's all right for you lot, the human said moving over to the booth, the aliens cautiously following him. The bar listened intently. 
This is something my commander taught me back when I was like you. Hold gung-ho to start killing the bad guy. It goes like this. People like to say that war is hell. That's wrong. War is war and so much worse. Because it's the innocent that are dragged into war. At least in hell you know why you're there. A kid doesn't know why they can't go to school anymore. Or why dad's not coming home. Why their sister can't cough from constant black smoke. The human took a drink seeing a glimpse of the now-soured faces of those sitting with him, one of them beginning to say something before the human continued. A battle buddy of mine expanded on that saying, I think I've figured out what's worse than war, the people in it, because half the bastards don't care, they're just some dumb kids following orders, or callous old fecks that have seen so much blood, it's like water for them. They don't care anymore, or they don't realize they need to care, Care about the poor bastards on the other side of the barrel. The human raised his claws, taking another swig, this time the alien slightly waiting. The last part I've added myself. The worst thing I've found is the good ones. You see, there are only one or two reasons a good one gets into a war. Either they're protecting something, or they got nothing left to protect. The ones with something to protect will fight with principles. They will fight with honor because they have something to lose. They will do everything in their power to survive and to see the one thing again. But they will gladly die if it means they protect whatever they've got left. Another sip of the drink before he continued. The ones with nothing left to lose... They will rip and tear and scream their vocal cords out. They don't care about coming back. They don't care about winning. They just want to make you pay. They will put up a bomb vest. They will rip up IEDs. They will crash a starship into a planet. They will send a system supernova because they have nobody left to fight for. Only memories. And those memories, they go with them when they die. The human finished taking a final swig of the glass as he stood from the table. What your people have done, boys, that attack on the Zeknoff system, you don't have any regular people left. The only thing you've got left are the good ones who are going to be fighting. If I were you, I'd find some way to dodge that deployment. If not, well, I hope that the devil finds you before the good ones do, he said, giving a nod and tossing a crit chip with enough for another round of drinks. Hey, Human, can I ask you something before you leave? One of the butchers spoke up. Shoot, the human said, turning around at the doorway. Which one are you? The butcher asked. Ah, me, I'm one of the tired ones, he said with a deep, sorrowful chuckle before he left the bar. End of story. Story number two. Only death, written by Dan and Angel. There is no hope of victory, huh? Only death... Why do they keep fighting? General Tolvik tried to fathom the human psyche as he glared at the ruined amphitheater, miles under the surface which was covered in the blood and gore. The fighting on Jackson's moon shouldn't have lasted this long. It shouldn't have happened at all. Once the space was cleared of any opposing fleet, the planets were supposed to surrender, it was the only safe option, as orbital bombardments would safely and easily kill anyone on or near the surface. Terrorism, skirmishes, and raids by those who refused to surrender were expected. But that was a minority and could be dealt with with a small army that focused on keeping a few key areas open for exploitation. After the war, 
things would be ironed out, deals made, and the citizens would be relatively peaceful, or they'd be rounded up and dealt with. But Jackson's moon was in most planets. There was an airless moon that had been mined for over a century. The tunnels were seemingly endless, and after their fleet had retreated, the millions of humans living on the planet fled deep underground. That would have been acceptable. While the moon's resources would be nice, they weren't essential. What wasn't acceptable was how the humans had repeatedly shot several tons of iron ore at near light speed towards the shipyards in a nearby asteroid belt. The improvised weapon had destroyed a corvette and badly damaged a battleship that had been under repairs. After orbital bombardment resulted in only superficial damage to the moon, General Tolvik and his men were called in. For half a revolution around the sun, they had been fighting and dying in cramped tunnels of the moon. The humans were taking heavy losses, but his soldiers were taking more. As the humans used their mining experience and knowledge of the tunnels to run rings around them while using prodigious amounts of explosives... Now looking at the amphitheater, where the thousands of bodies lay, he wondered when the humans would realize that they couldn't win. He had a steady stream of reinforcements. They didn't. The last offensive had to have killed many of their soldiers. The humans were being bled dry. General, we have a prisoner. Tolvik motioned for the human to be brought to him. The soldier half carried a bloody and dazed human up to the small ramp. He looked at the small figure. It was filthy and its hair had grown long and wild during the war. Skinny, as all humans were, now that they were rationing their food, but not gaunt. It had a pack on its back half full of energy clips. What surprised him the most was the human's age. But were you doing here, child? He asked in the human's language. The child, who hadn't even reached puberty, looked at him, dazed and confused, but to fight Giving soldiers clips so that we can kill you, it said, its words slurred, making it hard to understand. Get this child to a medic and then to a camp hospital, he ordered. Watching the soldier carrying the child away, Tolvik shook his body in wonder. The humans cherished the children to a nearly insane degree, spoiling them far too much. Yet here they were, sending them into battle. He looked over the amphitheater once more and wondered how many bodies belonged to children. There is no hope of victory here. Only death, he muttered. End the story. Only death, he muttered. End the story. Tales from Outer Space 1336. Story number one. We Become Death, written by Weirdo5255. Why do you insist on continuing this? asked the captain, addressing the smaller creature on the ground in front of him. The thing scrambled forward on its limbs, moving at an unnatural gait, unable to raise itself back up to the stance he had seen in the rest of the species. It hit and bounced off his armor, and once again collapsed onto the floor. Leaning down, the captain grabbed one of its upper limbs in his claw and lifted it into the air. The creature struggled for a moment before going limp as he brought it up to his face. Blood streamed down the limb where he'd grabbed it, and the captain marveled at how delicate the thing was, it and the rest of its species. They were perhaps the weakest creatures to have ever achieved interstellar flight, yet 
had taken the Torben Empire nearly a decade to subdue them. The creature shuddered, and turning its face to him, the captain was momentarily frozen. The eyes were not unlike those of his own species, expressive. Inside of them, he could see the pain that the creature was in, but more prominent was the hatred smoldering inside its soul. The creature coughed, and a small amount of blood dripped down its face and onto the disheveled armor that it was wearing. The creature smiled. I am still alive, it said, its voice raspy and barely discernible over the din of the machines and compartment. You have lost, your planet has fallen, and your species has been reduced to nothing more than a spattering of desperate refugees. Your pitiful attempt to try and sabotage my ship has failed, yet you still fight. Why? The captain asked. The creature glared at him, and then shifted slightly. It pulled itself up higher, the blood from its limb flowing faster around the captain's claw as it did so. Moving higher, it placed its other limb on its claw and brought its face up to the captain's appendage, which was, with only the smallest amount of force possible, holding it up in the air. Bringing its face forward, the creature quickly clamped its pitiful mandible on its claw. The captain frowned. He barely felt the pressure as it strained to bite him. Stop! You will only harm yourself, father, the captain said. The creature continued for several moments. The captain heard an audible crack. The creature released its hold and a fresh gout of blood poured from its mouth. Unsure what to do, the captain released his grip of the thing and it collapsed to the ground. For several moments, the captain watched as it collected itself and then slowly and lethargically once again tried to attack him, crawling forward to simply hit his foot with a weak appendage, applying no more force than a newborn would. After several moments, the creature seemed to lose the energy that it had and it stopped attacking him. After a moment, it rolled over onto its back and brought the damaged limb closer to its chest, cradling it. The captain looked down at it. The creature's eyes were closed. Then a small sound escaped its lips, one that the captain had not heard issue forth from any of the other specimens. It took him a moment, but the captain quickly recognized it as laughter. What started as a small chuckle quickly built until the creature was laughing as if drunk. <laughs> I'm still alive. <laughs> we don't surrender to death. We, we fight him more fiercely than we fought you, said the creature. The captain frowned. You can't hurt me without your weapons, and I could kill you by accident. There is no fight, the captain said. The creature laughed again. <laughs> I, I know, but I'm still going to kill you. You destroyed everything we fought for centuries to build in only a few years. I can't not fight you. You fight even if you cannot win, asked the captain. The creature opened his eyes, and mixed with pain and hatred, the captain saw another emotion. Pity. It was something he had never seen in the eyes of a species he conquered for the Toven Empire. Hate and fear, rage were emotions he saw in the eyes of those he interrogated. He had never seen pity. The creature rolled over and slowly put itself up in three limbs, the damaged one still held close to its chest. You wouldn't, asked the creature. You wouldn't fight until your limbs fail and your mind begins to slip away as if you were faced with death. You would surrender to him asked the creature. The captain frowned, unsure what to say. 
In the history of the Empire, their victory had never been in question, and the soldiers of the Empire did not fear death. They would kill themselves before allowing themselves to be taken captive. If it were my time, the captain said. The creature laughed again. <laughs> then you're a coward. Death is the greatest enemy, and we don't give him ground. We have fought him for thousands of years, and we will continue to do so. We will make sure you fear him as well. We will make sure that you see us as death. The creature took a breath and collapsed onto the ground, into a pool of its own blood on the floor. The comm panel in the room flashed on, and a harried-looking subordinate came into view. Sir? What? asked the captain. Something is wrong with the primary, said the subordinate, and the image flickered to a main star of the system. The captain was not astrophysicist, but he knew that the black puckering at the center of it was not normal. What's going on? asked the captain. A space-time rapture has formed and is collapsing our warp fields. We cannot escape, said the subordinate. The captain turned to the creature. What did you do? Collapse your star into a black hole, he asked. The creature made this odd laughing noise again, but as it said nothing. The captain turned to the display. What is it? he asked. A collapse. A complete collapse of energy in the universe, Captain. The false energy state theory. The subordinate turned to look at the captain. If the energy readings are correct, the bubble will expand at the speed of light, collapsing all matter and energy in the lowest state. This will destroy the galaxy. The captain rounded the creature to demand an explanation. He was staring at him, its broken teeth visible. Now we become death, the destroyer of worlds. End of story. Story number two. With help written by a glass of whiskey. Under the guise of help, he was going to invade. His target was Earth. Outwardly, a part of the United Soul Federation, but internally there was almost a full-on war. Thanks to his spies' excellent work, not only had they gained this information, but also the perfect moment to strike. The Martians would have to be thankful after he stopped their attackers, and the Earth would be his. The tension was reaching its climax as both Earth and Mars had escalated their preparations. A missile launch had triggered countermeasures that could be interpreted as a declaration of war. Both sides were scrambling all their forces, and some minor skirmishes had already broken out. Earth United was in the middle of organizing a large-scale strike when some Bavarian ships jumped into the system. Immediately, accusations of outside assistance started to fly, as both sides presumed them to be hostile to them. Good evening, humans. We have come to assist in the Martian conquest of Earth. The exploration and communication was the result of a simple message, followed by an immediate Martian reply. We do not accept your assistance. Our aim is and continue to be the defense and independence of Martian soil, not the conquest of Earth. Too fast. Much too fast. His attack was supposed to have been immediate after the message, but that still meant a couple of minutes. If they would denounce them, then they would have to switch aside. Very well, then. We'll support Earth's conquest of Mars. Oh! As a mostly symbolic measure, they shot and destroyed one small Martian scout ship. But as it became clear to both sides that neither side had called them here, their hostilities started to direct towards the new target. Um, Captain, it seems both sides of forces are heading towards us. Impossible. 
That would have leave them wide open attacks from either side. Captain, what should we do? It didn't make any sense. The whole reason for the conflict was their mistrust towards each other. And now they were just going to trust each other. Captain! The screen from his subordinates brought him back to reality. And he turned to look at him and repeated once again, What should we do? Well, if they couldn't do it peacefully, ish, then they would do it with force. Battle formation, line up! At his command, the ships of the fleet moved into position. Captain, we are ready to fire. Excellent. Both Earth and Mars would be his. Um, Captain, a large amount of missiles are incoming. Specific count. It was fine. Their point defense was the best in the galaxy. Could easily take many thousands, and humans had little recent conflict. Easily manageable. No. Repeat your last reply. No. Was he refusing his orders? It's not possible to get a count. Ah, uh, I see. Too small. That happens sometimes with very small objects made it impossible to get a clear reading. No! The computer says that there is only one, but it's three by three kilometers in area. Um, what? You mean an area three by three kilometers is covered in something? Some kind of strange new ship. Not anymore. They've split up. Computer estimates count as one million missiles. That was bad. Very bad. Signal for tactical retreat. It's too late. Waves and missiles roared forward against the first line of ships. The point defense system started to light them up. Every time they struck one down, it caused a small explosion, forming a wall of exploding missiles, getting ever closer. For a brief moment, the wall was halted, dangerously close to the ships. Until first one, then one more missile found its target. They exploded in immense lights, outshining the system's sun for one brief moment. As a whole formed, the defenses faltered, and more and more missiles found the targets. Are they all nukes? Yes, Captain. How many are coming for us? Maybe, if we want that many. At least 10,000, Captain. Fuck! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1337 The Pyramid, written by Ak-1308 I swung the machete one last time, cleaving a particularly stubborn bunch of vines out of the way, and stepped into the clearing. Voila! I declared, spreading my arms wide, though being careful not to decapitate my assistant with my machete. A lost pyramid right where I thought it would be! Paul stopped alongside me, panting heavily. A brawny young man... He had mainly agreed to come with me on my expedition when I told him that it would give him extra credits towards the end of the year. I had shamelessly taken advantage of his good nature, loading him with as much of my equipment as he could carry. Holy crap, Professor, he agreed, right where you said. How'd you know? Satellite pictures? I snorted. Who's got the time to search every square meter of a photograph of jungle with a magnifying lens? I cheated and followed the directions. Now he looked really confused. Uh, directions? I sighed. This was the reason I hadn't revealed my sources until now. Yes, directions. Did you know that there are pyramids of this nature in every continent? With a wave of my hand, I indicated the squat square block construction before us. Far removed from the majestic constructions of Giza, this was much less imposing, but somehow managed to look more sinister. Perhaps... It was the overgrowth of the grass, or a small trees in various levels, or maybe the surrounding jungle itself. Firstly, I blamed pop culture. 
Every movie that featured a pyramid and jungle invariably had a monster, all three residing within the construction itself. A base canard. Predators needed to roam free, not lurk within a set area and hope for importunate explorers to fall into their traps. No, Professor, I didn't. He took his hat off to wipe his brow. Then he stared at me. But even in Antarctica, yes, even in Antarctica... I smiled and looked at the confusion in his face. It's a well-kept secret, but they did discover a pyramid there. Or rather, the remains of one that had been damaged by a glacier. From the pictures they took, however, I was able to reconstruct what it originally looked like. By the way of illustration, I waved the pyramid before us. Exactly like that, though with uh, rather less overgrowth on it. That's, um... He rubbed the back of his neck. That's, uh, amazing. Which was odd because the look on his face said, that's crazy. But I supposed he really wanted those end-of-year credits. I sheathed the machete and rubbed my hands together. It is, isn't it? Now we must construct our camp, and then you will catch an animal for me. An animal? He looked at me. What sort of animal? I waved the query off. I honestly don't care, a parrot or an anteater or a monkey, whatever you find. Bring it to me alive. The discussion was over. I turned back towards the pyramid and began to circle around it, hacking at any vines that could get in my way. I was close to my goal. So very close. Nothing could stand in my way. The next morning dawned clear and fine. I rolled out of my sleeping bag, stifling my grumbles at the aches and pains that had inevitably developed from sleeping on the ground. Unfortunately, the copious amounts of insect repellent which had packed along had done its job, and none of the larger jungle animals had seen fit to investigate our camping spot. The small monkey that Paul had managed to snare glowered at me and tried to bite me when I picked it up. Paul already bore several imprints from its teeth, all treated with antiseptic. He had asked me if we were going to be having monkey stew. It was a possibility, I told him. We began to clear away into the interior of the pyramid itself. Paul in the lead with the machete and myself lighting the way with our high-powered LED lamp, not used until now for obvious reasons. The number of live vines dropped away rapidly after we left the sunlit areas. Even spiderwebs became less frequent, despite what horror movies will say. I took note of the occasional animal droppings littering our path and made sure to check the ceiling on a regular occasions. Mats may not be able to turn into vampires, but some have been known to carry rabies. Eventually, following the directions I had learned by heart, we reached the stone tablet in the middle of the pyramid. I used a whisk broom to brush off the accumulated small detritus of the ages, and drained the lamp upon it. A smile spread across my face as I recognized the markings. I've never seen anything like this before. Paul said, frowning heavily. I have, but never undamaged like this, I replied absently. This is a map. See, there's an Antarctic pyramid in the Middle African one, and the one in Thailand. Hmm. So that's where the Australian one is. <sighs> Interesting. Australian? But the natives there never built pyramids. His tone was full of doubt. The, the current crop, certainly. But what makes you think the white people are the only visitors in the last 20,000 years? I tapped the center of the map, and here we are. Clear out that socket, will you? Looking, Memor a little confused, he reached across the tablet to gouge an accumulated grunge out of the octagonal hole in the center. Meanwhile, 
I set the lamp down and reached into my pack for my most prized possession. It had cost me everything I had in an Egyptian bazaar, plus a few things I would normally have never given away. But it was mine now. An interesting thing about all these different pyramids is that they have the same construction and the same markings inside. I remarked as I looked at the engravings on the tablet and manipulated the device in my hands to fit. The conclusion is inevitable, the same culture built all of them. Which one has a tablet in the center, but the tablet is different for everyone. Each one has at the center of its own map, Paul guessed, using his handkerchief to finish cleaning out the socket. Well done, my boy, I praised him. Now if you can bring our little friend over here. Okay, he said dubiously, but went to do it anyway. As he did so, I slotted the device into the socket. It fitted perfectly, of course. The markings around the side were identical to those that I'd seen throughout the pyramid. In the center, a brilliant gem of a type that I'd yet to identify sparkled in the light of the lamp. Oh, Professor, what's that? Paul returned to the tablet with Snarling Monkey, had seen the device, or rather the gem that was at its centerpiece. This is us going farther than any other human beings have done, at least since the pyramids were abandoned, I proclaimed. Taking possession of the monkey with my left hand, I drew my clasp knife with the other. In a moment of weakness, I allowed myself to touch a drama and opened it with my teeth. Then, before Paul could inevitably object, I held the captive creature over the gem and slashed its throat wide open. The blood gushed out, covering the gem and its associated device in an instant. As the monkey's sudden and frenzied struggles began to weaken, the blood began to spread out through the grooves engraved in the tablet. When it reached the edge, a tremendous grinding sound filled the room, and the tablet began to rotate in a way that my eyes could not follow. What's happening? Paul asked. Our destiny, my boy, I replied. Our destiny. When the tablet finally stopped moving, I realized three things. First, the monkey was dead, drained of all blood. Second, the tablet and device were clean as though they'd been polished. Third, the map was different. Paul stared at me. You killed that monkey, he said accusingly. Why? The ancient writing said that a life was needed, I shrugged. Human sacrifice is dramatic, but entirely unnecessary in this case. For a few moments, Paul seemed to struggle with this. Then he pointed at the tablet. Okay, so it did something. What did you do? In answer, I took the device from the middle of the tablet and placed it back in my pack. Let us go and see. I took back to the exterior of the pyramid, went entirely without incident. He was certain that Paul noted, as I did, the fact that the stonework looked new entirely without stain or blemish. What he thought of it all, I wasn't certain. When we reached the entrance, Paul stopped stock still and said, No, oh no fucking way, he breathed. I was equally shocked, but for different reasons. Still, my smile was entirely genuine. On the contrary, my dear fellow, yes, fucking way. Before us, in the base of the jungle that we had hacked our way through, was miles and miles of rolling farmland. Tilling the soil, pulling the plows, was great beasts that I knew, but had never expected to see the flesh. And working the fields were farmers. But not ordinary farmers, not even Incans or Aztecs, but Surians. Well, 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 I mused, this is a turn up for the books. End of story. 
Tales from Outer Space 1338. Story number one. You cannot outrun humans. Written by the Caleb Mac. By the Void Mother's bowels. The profanity should have earned the vessel guide a swift yet pain-encouraged death. But given that the whole of the hive was now tumbling across the edge of the planetary gravity well and into an uncontrollable descent into atmosphere, the indiscretion was overlooked. Gravity waves still beat upon the hull of the small hive fleet, the last survivors of what had been a grand and massive invasion force sent from the homeworld to conquer this arm of the galaxy, as so many had been sent before. At this time, the invasion had been blunted. Soft cold after only turning three worlds into Ford hives, and now each was lost. One turned into a glass ball with atmosphere of poison gas. Another was now nothing more than debris fields slowly turning into rings around another nearby planet. But the last. The demons actually took it back by force, with a speed and ferocity that was never before thought possible by any or all of the great mind queens. The demons arrived, like a wave of seas smashing into one stranded in a storm. Weapons that spewed metallic rocks like a hailstorm, plasma like slow flares, and lines of light like red hellfire, burning twice as hot, swept the horde from the planet, nest by nest, nursery by feeding pod. So the hive ran. Yet the demons followed. Swifter than reason, or just out of sense of range, every time the hive fleet paused, the demonic humans followed close behind. And nothing seemed to stop them. Crumple one ship, three more took its place, Trying to consume another, it would detonate like a small star, bait the fleet, and their fighters would swarm you from behind. The only time the hive was not on high alert was in hyperspace, where the humans did not dare to follow. Yet always, they seemed to be waiting on the edge, gravity bending about them unnaturally. Snorking. Always, the humans stalked. Except... And they just ran you down with their unholy warp drives, bending gravity like space, like a meteor impact on a moon, but in a very void itself. Madness! We cannot stand that which refuses to die, which refuses to turn loose of us, refuses to let go. The Hive Queen was having a nightmare again. The Hive Queen was having a nightmare again. Her garbled cries of distress distant beneath the present. Stupid bug, muttered Jaxa as he went about cycling through the security feeds. You can't outrun humans. End of story. Story number two. Cold Iron, written by Crumb JD. Leave, Faye, I said, putting as much command into my voice as I could manage. The fairy turned towards me, and for a moment... I was stunned. Every part of him was perfect. Every feature was utterly ideal. Every line of his body just as it should be. Every hair in place. I wanted to drop my sword and swear service to him just so that I could follow him wherever he went and be forever in his presence. Instead, I twisted my sword such as the icy pommel met the small patch of bare skin between my glove and my coat. The push of glamour against my senses retreated somewhat, and I was able to growl out my commander's second time. Leave! I won't, the fairy said in his fine, musical voice. I have need of a child, and I haven't taken one yet. 
It glanced up and the fire escaped above the creature. Apparently, he intended to jump onto that and then climb up to some apartment and snatch a baby. The fairy held a sack and now that I knew what to look for, I could see the outlines of an infant, but still and unmoving. An inactive changeling. And I won't allow it. I took a step forward, moving my sword into a guard position. The fairy drew his own sword. I felt an odd flicker of entirely mundane jealousy. The fairy wore 15th century court attire, complete with scabbard for his blade. I carried my own around in a modified trombone case. It wasn't nearly as convenient. There are some odd advantages to being completely oblivious to the passage of time and the sheep of human culture. The blade was silver, not silver-colored, but actual metal. The fame had no use for iron, and the magically enhanced metallurgy can do some impressive things. It looked like congealed moonlight in the otherwise dark alley. I'd assumed that we'd get right to the knife work, but the fairy surprised me by asking, Why not? I'm not doing any harm. There was a bit of a pout in his voice. How do you figure that? Ah, it's simple. You humans love your children, right? No matter what they like. I nodded, though I mentally added, mostly. Some kids have a rougher time than they should. Then they have it. The human parents will love this. He after the back slightly. It won't matter if it's duller, slower, or more sickly than a real child. I, however, have proper standards, and thus I will have the real child to keep me happy. Everyone prospers. The very smile, and it was chilling because I knew he believed every word of that. They can't lie. It said that there's no soul, so they can't create anything, not even something as simple as an untruth. It's also why they take human children. A human slave can do many things that they can't. If society knew about Faye, I expect arguing morality with a fairy would be an expression. It would mean the same thing as pounding sand or pissing it to the wind. I decided to fall back on a more universal concept. Violence. Oh no, my sword is cold iron. You don't want to fight me, and I don't want to fight you. The fairy set its bag down, indicating it took my threat to at least slightly seriously, but raised a single quizzical eyebrows. Iron may be, but is it cold? Some iron is cold, so cold it burns like ice in the deepest winter, but not all. His words drew my attention to the chill seeping through my gloves from my sword. On a night like this, I would have been able to hold it for long barehanded, and if any sweat leaked through my glove, I'd end up frozen to the hilt. Of course, that wasn't what the fairy meant. I launched a weak lunge at him. I made it so slow that even an untrained human probably could have blocked it. The fairy was stronger, faster, and more graceful than any human, so my opponent had no trouble. He parried negligently, holding his sword to the loose sloppy grip that would have made my old weapons instructor slap him. After deflecting my attack, he returned his sword to a guard position that could only be called such with considerable charity. Still, none of that meant that he was bad with a blade. It meant he assumed that I wasn't any sort of threat. I took a step back, disengaging, and asked, Cold forged iron, then... I know nothing of forge mantling. It is beneath me, like a horseshoe. The metal is just beaten into shape without heat. The fairy shrugged, but I noticed a prick of concern in its eyes. Horseshoes are often cold. Did you beat your sword into shape then? Sometimes I feel an urge to snicker at inappropriate moments, but I suppress it. At any rate, my sword certainly wasn't cold forged. 
Coldforges causes metal to crystallize, making it brittle and weak. My sword is spring steel, wickedly tough and flexible, though it could hold an edge better. Instead of answering, I launched another attack. This time it was broadly telegraphed slash better blocked than parried. Giving my incompetent first strike, the fairy thought nothing of catching my blade against his. The cold forge does one other thing, or at least it did in the old days of manually pounding bar stock into horseshoes with a mallet. It magnetizes the material. To the best of my knowledge, the Fae have no expression for cold neodymium. However, when I rolled my soul, such as the flat and the bar of the stuff set down at the center of the blade, touched the fairy's own silver sword, he was well introduced to it. The magic on the silver sword broke. No, it went feral. The sword shattered into a thousand razor-sharp splinters in defiance of any conventional explosive physics. Every sliver splinter arrowed directly for the fairy. It staggered back and swore harsh, sibilant words in an unfamiliar language as it was pierced. I didn't stop to listen. Instead, I stepped in and swatted the fairy himself with the flat of the blade. His glamour broke instantly, revealing something man-shaped but strange, angular, and inhuman beneath it. The creature screamed. It wasn't a human sound. It was like a train had locked all of its wheels in a panic stop as it skidded down rusty tracks. It went on and on, so loud that I dropped my sword and staggered back with my hands over my ears. Then the scream faded as the darkness swirled up from the ground and sucked the creature back into its own reality. It wouldn't be back soon. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1339 Story number one. Let me tell you about hate. Written by Hell's Kitchen Sink. What's that? He tapped on the datapad. This galactic almanac contains a brief on every species in the galaxy, background details, ratings on their sociability, intelligence, technology, kinesthesis, and aggression. What does it say about humans? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I opened up the pad to the appropriate entry. Hmm, recently space-traveling Sophant, bipedal, endoskeleton, furred, apoid, from Sol 3. Vestigial pack herd with tendency towards scavenging. Huh, brief. Well, you're not that unusual, and you don't have much galactic history, let's see. Uh, sociability, six, intelligence, what for? Look, it's not that unusual, especially amongst carbon-based life. The tests are kind of biased anyway. Technology, too. No particular outliers. Kinesthetics. Oh, a seven. That's top 10% of the galaxy, you know. Aggression, three. Huh. Is, is that an asterisk? Uh, I've never seen that before. I tap on the asterisk. In case of extreme ideological conflict. Nine. Oh, I mean, uh, at least it's not a ten. The scale is logarithmic on these, uh... The horrifying extinguishing things that refused to share their name were rated at an 8 until the galactic community exterminated them for the complete inability to tolerate other sapient life. A 10 would be a hypothetical Matrushka brain whose every logical circuit was dedicated to the vehement hatred of the universe and everything within it. Well, uh, I guess we shouldn't discuss politics at dinner, just in case, he said brightly. End of story. Story number two. Vacas, written by Owl's Kitchen Sink. One 
would think that, at a certain point, a civilization stops believing it varies. At a certain point, the mysteries are gone. We know why those mushrooms grow in rings like that. We understand what animals make those shrieks in the darkness. We know that those strange, spade-shaped heads are barn owls. What else is there to discover? But there's always another mystery, and always another strange sound in the dark. The first three faster-than-light attempts didn't go well. Ships would disappear into the black and never come back. Over short distance into system, there was no problem. But anything past the Kuiper Belt, and they might as well have thrown themselves into a black hole. No transponder pings, no communications. At a certain point, we gave up, but there is only so long that people can be kept in place. The fourth ship was a prototype colony ship, designed for long hauls, journeys of years or even decades, to augment the internal scrubbers the engineers got clever. They installed an entire ecosystem from the Gunaway Forest Park. There was only a small crew of extremely hardline Scottish separatists aboard the Nicola Sturgeon, and it set course for a yellow sun about twenty light years away. Everyone besides the crew didn't expect much of anything. So when their ship returned, about five years later, refitted, reformed, and bringing the news of a successful trip, it was with a great deal of smug, I told you so from the captain. The trip itself had been peaceful. There had been higher than usual reports of strange noises, odd occurrences, and food being consumed from the stores, but no catastrophic destruction of the ship and all aboard it. The only phenomena that defied explanation were the horseshoes. Occasionally, titanium objects on the ship would be found bent into a horseshoe shape, with no sign of who had done it on the ship's cameras. The mystery had been solved when one of the cooks had caught the rat in the pantry. Half a dozen crew members teamed up to corner the being, only to discover the diminutive creature was, in fact, a humanoid, approximately six inches tall. This may have ended in disaster, save for one member of the crew being a particular fan of old Gaelic mythology. After the shared a saucer of milk and the now-friendly sprite, the captain and the ship was introduced to the lady of the particular wood that they had taken. The Lady Iceling spoke mostly in riddles, but her explanation of things was that, having been in hibernation in the depraved late days of humanity's existence on Earth, the fairies of Galloway Forest had not noticed when they were uprooted and placed in the ship, until they crossed into FTL. When the ship strode forth on the great paths, as she put it, they recognized that the humans had not brought the necessary signs and wards to travel safely and make dark reference to halfway. From context, some dark creatures that dwell on the hyperspace lanes and preyed upon those without proper protection. Lady Cabreen and her court had chosen to defend the Necklace Sturgeon's crew, taking interest in the brave new adventurers to a far land. After all, not even the greatest sea king or queen had ever had the power to take a trip down one of the great paths. Understandably, this game is something of a shock at first, and then there was no small amount of outcry, mockery, and the occasional suggestion of mass insanity. When the largest orbital stations on board Lung Forest revealed itself to be chock full of fey, however, even the fiercest critics found themselves forced to admit that the story was apparently true. The nature of the halfway is still unknown, 
to play off of the answers they have, but those answers are usually more folklore and story than hard scientific facts. Attempts to research them have thus far ended poorly. But there's always another group of starry-eyed physicists who want to test, and research continues. But there are a few things that are particularly important about this change. First, it explains the relative silence in the heavens, even amongst the handful of species we've found. Few have ever had their own native fay. Many, in fact, wage destructive wars on their fairies of their worlds. A handful manage to expand through the great paths with their own technological advances. Without fate to protect them, their expansion is piecemeal and often stymied. Humanity's capacity to ferry sapient life through the darkness between the stars is of great advantage, despite our relative and uh, shrinking technological inferiority. Second, there is some evidence to suggest that the galaxy was not always thus. The Fey certainly have memories of times when people traveled between the stars more freely. They are, after all, immortal. Some of the oldest and most powerful claim that there was a time when the great paths were possible to all, but that some disaster shut them tight and locked away both the Fey and the earthbound mortal species that fill the galaxy. And third, there is a simple fact of life. Every ship now has its vacas, the adventurous Fey who are eager to travel across the stars. They can be mischievous or serious, helpful or malignant, but they preserve the ship and the greater crew, first and foremost. It is said that they prefer not to be acknowledged, save for the dish of milk and a few choice pieces of fresh baked bread. They are merciless with scallywags and lazy maintenance, for they know that everyone's lives depend on the ship, and they are some who enjoy traveling with the lonely and misanthropic, providing a personal companionship. The only constant to Faye is that they are strange. The only certainty that they enjoy new experiences. They take a great pleasure from traveling alongside humans and engaging themselves in the dramas and fascinating stories of interstellar life. While they have few answers to mysteries, they are nonetheless a part of a spacefaring, and it is a foolish human who offends the Faye who keeps the halfway from the airlocks. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1340. Four Invasions and a Wedding. Written by August the Cat. When I was eight, my world was invaded. They came without warning in great black ships that dwarfed the pitiful transports that my people had made to ferry us between our home and our only colony further out in our own system. We had never seen such power, such brutal technology. We had dared to hope that we were not alone, but this was beyond anything that we were ready for, and we knew it. It was a small mercy that they didn't open fire upon our cities, as some of our darker stories assumed that they would. Instead, they broadcast an ultimatum, informed us that they expected their demands to be obeyed to the letter, and then sent a series of preliminary orders. Governments and corporations toppled, daily life became chaotic, and by the time the ground troops started landing in their flat, boxy craft, revealing flat, boxy soldiers in flat, boxy armor, we were prepared to give anything just to pretend life could go back to normal. They made slaves of us, in a way, 
giving us just enough hope for a better life that we would work ourselves to death under the new system. We were bent to one whip of mining, drilling, harvesting, but also technical skills, data entry, code testing, market research. We learned things that we wouldn't have known for decades. We improved our technology as best we could while still meeting our species-wide quotas. They took what they wanted, and eventually the thrill of invasion wore off. Skirmishes had happened at first, but then they simply died away as people gave up or saw that we were only slightly worse off than under our own corrupt politicians. The invaders similarly lost interest, running back to their ships and just collecting the tribute every so often, like bored gods. When I was 15, hardened from the mines, we were invaded for a second time. They came in sleek ships of gleaming metal, sensors, and broadcast arrays turning them into gleaming pincushions of communication. We'd never seen such refinement, such purity of design. We knew that we were not alone, but we still were trapped, and this new species came to us as potential saviors. Of course, we should have known that wouldn't be the case. They struck a deal with the invaders to use our world as a comm relay for their great network. We would be forbidden to use the broadcast technologies, for fear of interfering with the great machines that they planted out in the oceans. Their technicians came down in shining silver needles to show off their shining metal bodies as they built their monuments. They took slaves as well, engineers and programmers and guards and even simple couriers. They were well treated, fed and paid as much as could be spared, but they were still slaves. The things they learned put them so far ahead of the rest of us that even those simple servitors would be gods to us. But some came back and started teaching, while we were huddled in our old cities at night. Eventually, the new invaders finished their work, and, leaving a few token ships in orbit to bombard anyone who broke the broadcasting rule, they left. We had access to the network now, but it was a culture so alien that it threatened to destroy us as much as any missile from the sky. But we held together, old stories kept passed on by word of mouth, and we hoped for a day that we could reclaim our world. Hope is a dangerous thing. When I was 26, mindful of alien words, we were invaded a third time. We were hardly surprised anymore. We knew now that there was a greater universe out there, teeming with life. We just wished that we would ever have gotten to know it on our own, instead of seeing the massive globular ships that drifted into our system. We had never seen such nightmares, such monsters as these. They too struck a deal with the first invaders, but the tribute they demanded was not one of hands or minds, but of flesh. Black, boxy soldiers next to twisted, unarmed growths shuttled down to our world day after day, stealing away people seemingly at random. They vanished from our lives. We could not bear to think what they were used for. Food, pleasure slaves, something worse. Of course, it was something worse, as I found out when I was one of the ones grabbed one night. When the cost of keeping us in their experiments became too great, those taken were returned, myself amongst them. We'd been first poked and prodded, then divided up. Then a group had various compounds injected into our skin. Over the course of months, we changed, flesh warping into patterns that couldn't quite understand. Some went mad, but the rest of us kept alert. 
through the pain of the changes when we weren't under observation. We watched. We asked seemingly innocent questions. We stole glances at their monsters. We listened. We learned. We came to understand that we were being made into new forms for use as world shapers in the service of these third invaders. Our group was declared a failure, though. And so, flesh drooping from mis-sized bones, we were sent back. Their ships left, leaving only a few behind to monitor their experiments and contact new ones on stable populations. Before the century was over, it was said our people's original form would be gone, lost to the tides of history. At the age of 33, broken from mines, poisoned by a network, warped by a serum, my world, my home, was invaded for the fourth time. They came in a thousand ships in many styles, then some were the size of the first invaders' warships, bristling with firepower that could destroy a world. Some were spiked with communications gear and warp field projectors. Some were plated in living armor. Some were sleek. Some bulky. Some shone like stars. Some were blacker than the void itself. Some were all of these things at once. We waited in our decaying cities and broken homes to see the new injustice that would be dealt us, trapped in our own gravity well, watching the sky through makeshift telescopes. I was one of the ones watching, and so I was one of the lucky few who got to see a flat box of dreadnought ripped into pieces by a volley of weapons fire that showed itself as sparkling dots through my scope. I was privileged to witness one of those bristling needleships smashed by plasma fire and burned brighter than their ships would have ever shone I was allowed the distinct honor of witnessing the bulbous nightmare burst like a bubble under the combined might of a dozen different aggressors. I was one of the ones that saw the first landers come down and ran out to meet them. Fear had left me years ago, along with hope and pride and faith in justice. But now, all of those came rushing back as I dashed through the streets to meet our new occupiers, I would serve them willingly for what they had done. I would throw myself at their feet and bow and scrape in payment for the vengeance that they brought my people, brought me. What would they look like? What would they demand? It didn't matter. All that matters was that they couldn't be like the others. I reached the landing point. A few others were already there, but most were still hiding in the buildings. They too had given up long ago and they hadn't all seen the new way of things as I had. I watched as the lander opened, and a number of small beings swarmed out. Two arms, two legs, one head. White suits with simple red cross on the arm. Two of them spotted me and headed my way, pointing. They carried cases. So many of them were carrying things, bringing more and more out of the lander. Weapons, tools. One of them reached me, and in perfect language asked, Ah, you wounded. I couldn't speak. I was confused. Stunned. They spoke like us. They wanted to know if I was hurt. Did they only want the healthy? I can't still still work, I rasped out, twisted tongue slapping against split lips. The two looked at each other. One of them retracted their helmet as they turned back to look at me. A mess of brown hair over pale skin stared down at me with a look that I've come to universally recognize as pity. No, 
Are you injured? We won't hurt you. We're here to help. We're here to help. I laughed. I laughed and laughed and kept laughing until my damaged lungs gave out. And I collapsed. I heard the medics shout over me, felt rough-suited hands on skin that long ago ceased to feel properly. And then I was unconscious. When I was 33, I met my first human. When I was 36, my body had been restored through medical technology that would have cost our planet its entire treasury, if they hadn't simply given it to us for free. When I was 42, I moved back to my hometown, finished with my second tour of the human armada, repaying our, my, saviors by joining their campaign of liberation against an angry galaxy. By the time I was 44, I'd helped rebuild the old city library with the help of some of my new neighbors who were kind enough to have brought some of their people's books to contribute to the whole. By 45, I had devoured the stories they brought and gone in search of more. At 47, I finished co-writing a book with a longtime friend that I'd met a decade and a half prior. At 48, that friend and I were more than just friends. 56 and our adopted children were growing up together with our new kids in our neighborhood. 59 and we had a pet dog, imported from Earth. 60, and I finally convinced her to let us get a pet bell as well. Another decade since then of memory, dreams, family, friends, and advancement. My neighbors are now from four species. My friends are from a dozen more. Our world is rebuilt, better than ever, with the help of our galactic friends. I've traveled so much farther than I ever imagined and seen so many wonders, but all of them come up short compared to the simple pleasure of knowing who's waiting for me at home. The first human I ever met was a headstrong medic who visited the first Lorani she'd ever met in the makeshift hospital that they'd set up every day until he agreed to stop being such a groveling, rambling fool. Thirty-seven years have passed since then, and I still haven't totally given up on the rambling part. Happy Liberation Day, my friends. And to you, honey, happy anniversary. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1341. Story number one. Sniper, written by Radius 55. The sniper lay on a small rise overlooking the town. He could see the landing strip still smoking from the craft so recently touched down. He saw the crowd of onlookers, fearful of the enemy that had dealt so harshly with the smallest hint of resistance, and he saw his target, surrounded by its escorts and their interlocking shields at just a hair over 900 meters. With the representative of the group that had killed so many of his friends and family magnified in his scope, the human should have felt rage. By any standards, it was insane not to. The sniper felt nothing. Just note the group was nearing their initiation point and adjusting the aim of his modified Anzio 20mm rifle. It was hard to believe first contact had only been three months ago. This group had arrived on Earth in a pair of ships and proceeded to fire without warning. Military facilities, rocket launch facilities, and every national capital from DC to Harare, Zimbabwe were hammered with a combination of kinetic penetrators and antimatter bombs. With every nation's political leadership destroyed and military decimated, 
Earth had no choice but to surrender. As a part of the terms agreed to by the new governing council, heavy metal extraction was prioritized, and several industries were updated by the invaders to produce technology useful to the invaders. Resistance was common in the first weeks. The Arabs in the Middle East were the first to receive the reward for their actions when the members of ISIS attacked rare earth extraction operations in Afghanistan. They found, unlike the Westerners that they were so used to fighting, these aliens had no qualms about destroying entire towns to kill individual combatants. Thousands of militants were killed and tens of times that and civilians lost their lives. A few fighters made it into the view of aliens, saw their weapons have no apparent effect against the shields of the enemy warriors before they were slaughtered in mass. The sniper knew what had happened in Afghanistan. He also knew similar things had happened when other attacks were carried out all around the world. While watching the alien supervisor continue towards the new production facility, he should have felt fear in the retribution the attack would bring. Instead, the sniper double-checked the wind and made a minute adjustment on his scope. As a group passed by a parked vehicle, an explosion rocked the afternoon. With the signal, humans began to open fire with small arms from whatever cover they could find. Their weapons had no more effect against the enemy shields than so many spitballs, and the guards formed up in front of their leader, providing a stronger barrier against the fire. Return shots with energy normally reserved for human anti-tank weapons sent dust, debris, and bodies flying. In a few seconds, a third of the attackers and several dozen bystanders were dead. Not one of the aliens was even injured. A person should have been disgusted or filled with self-loathing. The sniper knew most of the people dying down there, neighbors, friends, comrades, and even family were being slaughtered while he was safe almost a kilometer away. Instead, he felt only recoil as he pulled the trigger. The 20mm tungsten penetrator discarded its sabot as it left the barrel, traveling at 957 meters in under a second. As it approached its target, a compact capacitor fed power into a shaped magnetic field generator. The distortion it produced was barely sufficient to allow the penetrator to pass through the barrier. Had a single guard been close enough to reinforce it with their own shield, it never would have worked. As it was, the barely had just enough energy to punch through into the alien's chest and explode out the other side. The sniper felt nothing as he observed the creature fall. No pride or satisfaction or contempt. He merely noted that the new penetrator had worked and the supervisor would be unlikely to survive with a large portion of his upper body splattered on the pavement. Then he began crawling back towards the drainage ditch that led away from the hide. Later, there would be time for congratulations. Later, there would be time for tears. Later, there would be time to plan the next attack. End of story. Story number two. Of two minds, written by Algy Father Anthracite. He sat in a room, surrounded by nothing but white. His head was held in a cage-like rack, leaving just his head immobile. There were various subtle buzzes, clicks, and whirs. After a while, the sound stopped and a previously unseen door unsealed and let in a tech who disconnected the rack-slash-cage thing and the man could move his head again. I can appreciate that you wouldn't believe me at first, but this should be pretty conclusive, right? The man asked. 
An unseen intercom buzzed to life, and the voice said, Yes, sir, this will confirm your allegations. Please remain seated. The technician will help you exit the scanner. In another room, a group of xenobiologists were looking at the holographic display. On it was slowly rotating rendering of the man's brain. Or at least 80% of the man's brain. In the area where his frontal lobe should have been, there was a singular lobe and an empty space. They stared aghast at the sight and the horrific implications. The man truly was missing part of his brain. He had been getting scanned in customs when a foreign object had been detected in his head. After asking him about the object, he told the officer that he'd suffered a medical condition that required brain surgery, and the object was a plate that covered the hole in his skull. He had said he had an aneurysm, a condition in his species where a, a blood vessel would bulge and deform or burst altogether, causing cognitive impairment. He said he's had a required removal of damaged brain cells. Such an obvious lie led to the man being detained. Once peace officers arrived to deal with the station, the man was detained and taken to the hospital nearest to the space station. After explaining for a third time to the Xena specialist doctor about its condition, the doctor had had to confer with some specialists. It was decided that a scan would either confirm or debunk the story. Most of the specialists were eager to see if it was true. When the scan showed a nearly removed chunk of tissue in his brain, most of the doctors and specialists stood, expressing various physical signs of disbelief, ranging from slack features to pulsing chromatophores to molting a few feathers. One unfortunate individual had to run to find a waste receptacle so that she could regurgitate. The subject of the scan, a relatively new species, galactically, was a human. One that was, according to all evidence, missing a part of his brain. Most of the viewers were tempted to ask for an additional scan, but the failure rate for scanners was practically non-existent. There was no way known to science to cause a void to appear on a scanner readout. The doctors began to look at each other. Someone, after a few moments, said, We should interview him, shouldn't we? I mean... There's so much to learn. How can he operate like that? I mean, it makes no sense. He should be drooling on the floor. The man sat in his room, casually waiting for the medical clearance. Unaware that just through the doorway, several creatures were calling into question some deeply held moral convictions, religious beliefs, and years of education, all due to his incomplete brain. The man sat at a table, explaining in as much detail as he could remember... He was an electronics technician by trade, and not well suited to describe the issues and side effects of the condition to medical professionals. But he did his best to describe some everyday issues he had. A drop in impulse control, constant headaches, numerous medications, but all in all, it felt relatively good. It's better than being dead, by a long shot, he replied with a smile. He gave them contact information for his neurologist and asked for a certificate to show to the officers so they would not have to go through the whole ordeal again. As he was being led out the room, he said, Thanks for the letter to show customs. This'll save some time and annoyance when I reboard the ship home. Oh, hey, you guys should ask my doctor about something called uh, alien hand syndrome. Apparently, if you're damaged, you break the bridge between the two halves of your brain. They start to act independently of each other, each half controlling one side of the body. 
They will even respond to the same questions with different actions, like choosing two different objects when asked to choose between several objects on the table. In bad cases, the offhand tries to hurt or kill the entire body. I read about it when I was learning about my condition. The man walked off, leaving shocked, even more horrified group of xenobiologists behind. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1342. Story number two. Missing, written by Terracron. We've got another one, Doc. The exasperated attendant wheezed. His skills fluttered in a hypnotic pattern, possibly in an attempt to catch her attention. But Hislant was determined to finish her report first, and ignored him. It wasn't until he started to turn green that she felt pity on him. There are plenty of surgical staff on call, Dremel. Why do you keep coming to me? Her fronds started to gain color. She wasn't really able to control it, but it should be clear sign to the young being that she was not amused anyway. He wheezed, Well, um, you have the most experience with them, man. The rest of the staff are scandalous. He wheezing just didn't end, and she was scared that he was going to have a fit. Her pity for the now almost vibrating youngster got the better of her. Fine, I'll go and see. The look of relief on his face was almost worth the oncoming anxiety. She made her way down the lightly colored halls, appreciating the cool air. She worked in several hospitals around the system, and this was the only one with an atmosphere that she could stomach. The pastel decor was a universal constant, however. It's something you learn to live with, she considered. Somewhere in the distance, a pulse monitor yelped aggressively. Something beeped. All things considered, this was a good place to work. Would have been great if it wasn't for the proximity to the new space base, Disappointment DA-9. It was huge, it was close by, and it was stuffed to the brim with humans. Apparently, the base was a retreat for apes returning from several walls, and almost all of them came to her hospital first. Nylent was freaked out by the humans. Her fronds fluttered with color, and she took a deep breath. It had been months since her first encounter with a human with the prosthesis, and she still shuddered to think of it. What's worse is that people started to look to her as the resident human expert. Apparently, they'd all given her incredibly praising reviews, saying that she was professional and frankly adorable. Flattering, maybe. Annoying, definitely. She found her way to the clinic, and her first human of the day, sitting on the examination table, was a familiar face. Teeth bared in a now familiar form of greeting amongst humans. She returned it as best she could, until she noticed his arm. Since she'd had to break the news to him, Simon Grant had indeed been able to strip his arm to expertly molded prosthetic skin. Apparently, he'd also managed to lose it above the elbow. Most disconcertingly, he was waving the remaining stump. She couldn't find the words. Hey, Doc, it's been a while since I've been here. Hesseland looked down at a pad and up at him again, trying to fit the remainder of the arm inside her blind spot. If I'm wrong about this, it uh, sounds like I'm being a bit racist, but weren't you the attending last time, too? She nodded and swallowed. Um, yes, yes, I was. Um, I was. She went through a violent purple. What seems to be the problem? She forced out, trying not to look at the metal sticking out of the human shoulder. 
I lost me arm, he said with a smile. It finally dawned on her. The human must have snapped. The idea of a prosthesis becoming too much for him. He promptly ripped it off himself. She needed to handle this delicately. You were in a fight. We did what we could to fix you. Ah, uh, no, Doctor. I, I mean, I lost my arm. She looked at him, nonplussed. I took it off last night, and now I can't find it. What? I've been drinking last night, you know, a couple of beers. The squad thought it would be funny if I took off my arm, and now I can't find it. Y- your, your squad, you, you? She tried to breathe, felt hyperventilation was just around the corner, and a nervous laugh escaped her throat. Where do you think it is? She managed to squeeze out. He looked sheepishly at the anatomical posters on the wall. I may have thrown it out the airlock on the dare. She tried to stifle the hysterical giggle that was forming. She really did, but it escaped nevertheless. Simon looked at her with a confused frown until he realized that she'd laughed and joined her. Will I have you fitted with another one, Mr. Simon Grant? Could you make the next one red? Make it look like I'm going faster. Still trying to stop laughing, Hisland made her way to the door. Once outside, she leaned against it and controlled her breathing. She shook her head, so weird, and laughed. End of story. Story number one. Shady Humans, written by British Tea Company. Most people are surprised when I tell them the most powerful group within the entire Union sits on Earth. They're always so surprised about how some random planet in the middle of nowhere could possibly be so powerful in terms of political power. To date, Earth has had membership within the Union for at least 500 years, but has not once ever had anyone born from that world fulfill any important role within the Union. Never once has there been an example of a human serving any important political office, and chances are, there never will be. It seems strange that I am calling humans the most powerful demography within the Union. There is no history of them having any power or movement on record, and we know quite well that humans are simply referred to as those people when they're brought up. Hardly anyone can even remember what a human probably is. That is the terrible thing about modern society. What if I told you that humans were the most powerful demography? What if I told you that in truth they also hold the most political power out of any race in the Union? You won't believe me. Well, what if I told you that all the banks within the Union are owned by humans? Go on, look it up, see? All the banks within the Union are owned by humans. Does it surprise you if I say that banking was a system that humans introduced? It doesn't good. Let's make it very clear right now that if there's one thing that humans are good at, it's finance. To date, 10 out of the last 13 economic booms since the last 500 years were as a direct result of the banks which the humans had set up. Roughly four economic recessions have been averted solely because of the systems which the humans had set up. Now, it doesn't end there. What have I told you now? That out of the top 100 businesses within the Union, 83 of them are owned by humans. And out of the 17 that aren't owned by humans, 13 of them have the majority of the shareholders being human. Good. You believe me now. Now then, here's a final thing. The average human within the entire Union occupies the top 0.1% of the galaxy, 
On average, your regular human is above the age of 30 will gross at least 4.6 million credits per year. The average income of a human at the age of 18 ranges from 185,000 credits to 300,000 credits. How? They are goddamn people responsible for most of the things that we know as modern finance. Stocks, the humans made that. Banks, the humans made that. Bonds, the humans made that too. 99% of the tax policies and politicians are making, probably drafted by some human pencil pusher. If there's one thing the humans are good at, it's making money. Money is how everything works, is how politics work, and by extension, money means power. The humans are the ones who sponsor politicians. They don't get into cesspool themselves. Why do you think everyone who runs for any position always takes a trip to Earth first? They want to get into the pockets of the big businessmen so that they can get uh, campaign donations. Of course, you know how that works. Scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. Yes, good observation. The humans, in fact, do own the majority of politicians. There are few who go against them, of course. But, as you know, the humans always get their due in the end, one way or another. Some people have tried to screw over the humans in the past. How did it end for them? Well, the humans don't use the law to uphold something that was done under the table, and they certainly don't break it either. The most powerful race is certainly above petty murders. They got a better way. They make enemies with them. They finance your enemies. They steal your supporters, your funding, probably even the clothes you wear. All stolen the legal way. They are above most shady organizations in the sense that you won't cut off your fingers for not doing the favor you owe. They prefer ruining you instead. End of story. Tales from Under Space 1343. Story number one. An undefended human world, written by Despair, in Gnosa, was a human world, founded by peaceful secession of the human empire. A whole bunch of human artists and scientists thought they knew better way to live, and eventually they got big enough that the imperial government said, Fine, show us, and deeded them the habitable world on the edge of human space. So ten thousand humans and a hundred million tons of equipment went out into the empty world, and sought to build their paradise. They got their infrastructure up and running in record time. Water and power, cities and roads, ordered farms and ordered factories, the works. They set up weird government based partly on voting and partly on just going out and doing stuff. It seemed to work for them. They had a tiny police force, but they had no poverty and good psychiatric medication, so they didn't have much crime. They named one of themselves Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces, but they didn't establish any armed forces for him to command. Fancy titles are nice, but actually being commanded would be contrary to their culture. He spent a lot of time organizing tabletop wargaming sessions, which he tended to win, and tossing around warship design challenges on the relevant engineering puzzle discussion boards. You might think that a world like that would be ripe for invasion. Well... Nobody tried. Three reasons. First, no one was entirely certain the human empire wouldn't fight to protect him. They weren't part of the empire, per se, but there were a lot of friendly relationships. Second, the empire or not, they were still humans, 
And a lot of people remembered how ripe for invasion Earth looked just before the Empire was founded. That hadn't gone well for anybody who tried. Finally, there wasn't much worth taking. Just scientists and artists, who were mostly publishing their work to the galaxy anyway. Once things got settled, and it was a very nice place to live, so they got a swarm of immigrants from the Empire, and a few more from elsewhere. Everybody was welcome, provided they passed acculturation. By twenty years after the founding, Incon NASA had a billion people on it, with cities and infrastructure to match. At which point the galaxy discovered something funny. Mix a scientist with an artist and you get an engineer. The Iconassians had the best auto factories in the galaxy. Best designs, too. Every detail was a product of an expert's full attention and pride. The designs were published, but in formats that only the Iconassian auto factories read natively. They had more manufacturing capability than they actually needed, so they sold the excess stuff to nearby worlds. They didn't use money internally, but Ekinessa was an entity built up by some very large bank accounts in foreign worlds. Which is why the fleet of Fnar raiders decided to attack the place after all. The fleet jumped straight to the edge of the Ekinessa's FTL interdiction, already moving fast and decelerating for contact. Seventy milliseconds after jump, space traffic monitoring sent a fleet a form message telling them that their approach was dangerous and offering a safe path. The FNR replied with a generic obscenity. Space traffic monitoring paged the police on call. The police officer on duty took a look at the incoming fleet, compared it to historical records, and called the Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces. I hope you're ready for this, he said. The Supreme Commander paged manufacturing on call to request emergency extra quota. He got it. About ten minutes after the FNAR jump, auto factories across Enkidnasa put aside their normal load to create minimal spaceships, less than two meters long with fast engines, every single energy projector and heavily encrypted comms. There was no room for crew. The ships were powered by small antimatter batteries and could last about three hours of heavy activity. The design was a product of a competition on a mecking golf forum and the Supreme Commander had run a few weeks earlier. Best 500 comma he'd ever spent. Half an hour later, the first of the miniships completed quality checks and launched. The FNAR were most of the way to Eknessa. About an hour after the jump, the FNAR arrived in Incotnessa and found the guarded by over a thousand small ships. Even so, they outmassed and outgunned the defenders. They opened fire. This proved a frustrating experience. Each miniship maneuvered quickly and unpredictably. It took several tries to score a direct hit. The miniships didn't have much shielding, but they had enough that wide-beam weapons weren't effective. Direct hits were effective, resulting in very satisfying explosions, but the Echnassans were adding ships to the field faster than the FNAR could destroy them. The FNAR launched drop pods and infantry, but regretted it at once. The miniships made short work of those. Briefly. The FNAR captain contemplated turning mash drivers against the Echnissan cities, but that was madness. He was already betting his life and more that human empire would ignore a war against an independent human settlement. They wouldn't ignore war crimes. The Supreme Commander was getting frustrated too. The miniships were defending nicely, but they didn't have the raw power to punch through the FNAR shields. He considered creating another class of ship, but the manufacturing latency was too high. He needed a solution now. 
He called one of his friends, more a puzzle gamer than a wargamer, but still generally fun to hang out with, and an expert on shields. Most people don't think much about shields. They stop stuff. Sure. If the exact wrong pattern of energy hits them, they suffer resonance and explode. But the odds of that pattern occurring are about a trillion to one, and finding that pattern deliberately is very obscure art. Like picking tumbler locks, only with more differential equations. The very best shields, that is, the ones designed by Echnessa, have special dampeners to protect against the sort of attack. The Afnar didn't have those. They were a warrior people who didn't take warnings published in mathematical journals seriously. The two defenders probed the Afnar flagship shield generator together for almost 20 minutes before it yielded to a singular matrix decompression attack. The flagship lost its shielding immediately. The Supreme Commander offered the opportunity to surrender. The high officers would be put on trial, but the rest of the crews would be spared. The Afnar chose to run instead. The many ships following, probing for the exact coefficients that unshield each ship and then destroying them. By the time the FNR reached the edge of FDL interdiction, there weren't many left. Those that were jumped immediately, not waiting for each other. The many ships had no jump engines, so the pursuit ended there. The Supreme Commander briefly pondered how to best express power at a distance before settling on the obvious. Drawing on the planet's large foreign currency reserves, he put up bounties on the officers' heads. Cleanup took days. The heads were received and paid for. The trash, including thousands of miniships with dead batteries, was cleared from near Inconessa space and dumped in recyclers. The manufacturing backlog was cleared. Even the parades and festivals eventually quieted down. The central government met to consider the question of building a real military. Eventually, they sided against it. It would run contrary to the culture, after all. And besides... They clearly didn't need one. End of story. Story number two. Soft cover, written by Nerdy White Male. What are you doing? Stop, stop at once and tell me what you're doing. Magnized unit leader Don yelled through his translator at the human. The humans were new to the Alliance, and this one was defacing this attack ship. This one had obviously come in on the last reinforcement ship along with these updated attack craft. Just giving her a name of some sort. The human glanced at Don's uniform and tacked on a sir through his translator. Daniel, Daniel Handy. Me barked as he shot to attention. Fifteen minutes later, unit leader Don, Lieutenant Daniel, and human liaison officer Mark Hughes were all sitting around a conference table. It's not vandalism, it's culture. Humans have always named and painted art on their ships. It's part of how we bond with it. It also has a practical side effect on close air support crops such as these. Lieutenant Daniel will elaborate. As he spoke, he tapped his pad, bringing up images of ships with dragon prowls, eyes painted on them, planes with shark jaws, and leaping tigers. And sir, these ships are tough, and uh, we can make them and still keep them in the air. This is complicated by having them fight in both space and atmosphere. Lieutenant Daniel tapped on his pad as in a hollow of a new attack ship floated above his table. It's going to carry a lot of extra stuff to fly and fight in those both. So, they are light on armor. If we get hit by a penetrator, we're toast. If we get targeted by any of the dozens of seeking munitions and the countermeasures fail, we're toast. The only thing the armor will stand up to is small arms fire, and not all of that. So we give them something to shoot at. Here, right over the cargo space, 
There are no important systems there, and it is double the armor of the rest of the ship the same as the engines. Unit leader Don blinked his eyes at the lieutenant. You wish to be shot at? No, 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 no. I, I don't, in fact, wish to, In fact, I'm hoping that uh, all the extra kilos of engine that was packed into it mean that I am there and gone before the bugs even notice me. But when they do see me, I want them shooting at anything other than the engines or me. The cargo old seems to be like the place to be most afford to lose. Lieutenant Daniel touched a hollow demonstrating what would happen in the event of the destruction of that part of the ship. Most of the taps resulted in the computer reporting the ship destroyed or disabled. Unit leader Don popped in and said, I see. Given that it is part of your culture, and you have demonstrated that it does have practical purpose, I prove. The paint you are using is not suitable for this purpose, though. Go see the quartermaster for ultraviolet reflective paint. The bugs, as you so put it, see in a different spectrum than we do. Liaison officer Mark waited until they were back in the hangar deck before the senior officer spoke. That was some mighty fine BS there, Lieutenant. Do you know why I had you explain the practical side? Um, no, sir, Lieutenant Daniel said. It's because you didn't inform me of your art project. You blindsided me and the rest of your squad, and it almost blew up in our faces. We need this alliance, and we're not big enough to go it alone. This alliance has already advanced our FDR research by 50 years, just by letting us study their sublight engines. Okay, you are now responsible for all ship art. And Lieutenant, liaison officer Mark glanced at the half-finished painting adorning the cargo bay door. Put some clothes on them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1344. Story number one. Wasps of Terror, written by Belgian rock fan. Natty, can I ask you a question about humans? Of course. What is it, son? Well, you know, when a planet gets attacked by the swarm, why are it always the humans who have to clean it up? I mean, Ropel are stronger, and Asik are faster, and Afo are smarter. Humans are just not the best at anything. So, why are they always sent in? Why are the humans, you ask well, uh, you're right, they're not that special. They're not strong or tough, and compared to most other races, they are rather slow, both physically and mentally. However, they do stand in one way. They are fearless. They are not afraid of the swarm. And do you know why? No. Why? It is because, and this is true, a human I met at a bar once told me this, they evolved on a planet where worse creatures than those of the swarm lived. And before you ask, how can anything be worse than a swarm? Let me tell you how this human described these ferocious beasts. The humans called them wasps. Tiny creatures only 0.5 inches to 2 inches long. But they are more vicious than even the biggest Prem Black in heat. Banshed this. You are a terror. Sitting in your backyard... You are basking in the sun, enjoying a cool drink, when suddenly there is a tiny little yellow striped bug crawling across your glass, attracted to the sweetness inside. Not knowing any better, you casually wave your paw in its direction to scare it off. Now, any reasonable bug would fly off and come back later, because it's a bug doesn't know any better. Not so with wasps. Oh, 
When wasps are threatened or when it decides it doesn't like the way you look or because it just feels like it, it will attack you. And you'd think then that surely a small bug poses no threat. Wrong! A wasp is so fast and nimble, it's nearly impossible for even someone with the legendary speed of the Afo to hit it in midair. When it's done teasing you, it'll land on your limbs, if you're lucky, and stab you with its venomous stinger and its tail, repeatedly, if possible. To a wasp, it doesn't matter that you're a hundred times its size, it'll still mess you up. Oh. And if you manage to hit it, or if it decides you're standing too close to their nest, which is very likely bolted into the walls of your home, it'll release something called pheromones. These pheromones tell every single wasp in the nest that you are dangerous and must be attacked. They don't care that you are standing right outside your home, minding your own business. They will attack you without question. Now, instead of one wasp, you've got a few hundred of the things trying their absolute hardest to murder you, and your options are pretty much limited to run and hide. The humans have been dealing with these monsters they call wasps since they became sentient, battling them with the best available weaponry. This is why humans are the ones to deal with the swarm, because they are fearless, and in a way have been training to fight this for the entirety of their existence. End of story. Story number two. Continuity written by Shank Cushion. It is not a deep hole. One of the enclave would stand a man six of its depth and climb out easily. The advisor gave us the instruction to dig it as deep as he was tall. My scent unit and I have wondered enough about this that it has entered the irritant of knowledge. Would the depth be different for a human of a different size? Human. Different. Threat. Experience denies this for the individual the enclave has counted. The advisor cautions that his kind are variable. The words of the advisor must be considered heavily. Human threat. Possible. But we dislike the thought. We will accept the advisor's words, apply caution when encountering further humans. It is not a deep hole. Foundational plant systems will intrude on the space. Nutrients drawn from local melon trees will increase for a time. Effects will include increased food production, time frame difficult to estimate. This is beyond this unit's activity horizon. Mark at two iterations minimum. Two iterations. The advisor guided the enclave for thirteen. His words have created changes in the enclave that are indelible. His knowledge was vast. The length of his activity span most certainly must have contributed. By his calculation, he had to have been active for three iterations before he encountered the enclave. This strange belief, despite observation. The Enclave had learned much in the span since his discovery. The irritative knowledge calculates that the advisor's instructions is worth many more melons than he consumed, though his number is stunning and must be accounted for should the Enclave discover another human. Much of this knowledge is of great use to us. Other pieces are difficult to comprehend. Smarts. Why expend such resources for no discernible return? Perplexing as it's the notion of fun which the advisor attempted to explain to my ascent units, undertaking a task of positive emotion and enjoyment. That is why we grow methods. Productivity is happiness. We enjoy not rationing food. Somehow, this does not meet the parameters of fun. 
the Enclave knows that some ideas must remain human. It is not a deep hole. Far below the field level is where the chamber where my inert ascent units are lain. They are stored there, preserved in case of future need. Should a descent unit have need, it may consume a part of the ascent unit to gain fresh access to irritative memory. This is rare, but necessary. Not all is passed to descent units. Sometimes more knowledge is needed. The advisor tells us that the humans do not preserve as well as the Marin Day. How exoskeletons is a critical factor. The humans also have strong avoidance tendencies about intraspecies consumption. We will not have this access to the advisor, despite the shadow hall. Mirum Day, the advisor named us of a kind. Melonium, he named us as an enclave. Matriarch, soldier, worker, he named us by function. Melitmelon, he named me as an individual. This identity is difficult to assimilate. This unit, indeed all units, consider the Enclave as an entity. To consider this unit measure, me, is to separate oneself from the Enclave as an entity. It is concerning. It is also intriguing. It is also depressing. Having been so named, but at the loss of the namer, do we remain Mirandae? Does Melonia continue to be our Enclave? Does this unit continue to be Merlet Melon? Me. Who will name my descent units? As he approached his activity horizon, it was clear that the advisor had fatally degraded. His movements were sluggish. He moved as though he was injured, though he suffered no accidents. His back bent as if weary. Despite this pose, he carried tension throughout his body. We could all sense the chemical markers of his degradation worsened, telling us clearly the malfunctions that he was subject to. I've wondered if the advisor was aware of these, as he would always attempt to reassure the units of the Enclave that his status was acceptable. His mind remained strong, however, and his advice sound. From the time of my third ascent unit, Sutmelaine is what the advisor named her. We have been preparing for this. We have encoded the advisor's knowledge for future iterations, as much as we could. We've attempted to complete the tasks he advised us in, so that he could provide insight for improvements. Our preparations were good. We were still not ready. This unit found him inert. The depth of feeling thus produced was astounding, even to myself. My body produced so many slowing chemicals that I was frozen in place. As units contacted my pheromone cloud, they too were stopped in place and began to emit the same signal. Moment. My moment. The effect grew until the entire enclave was locked in place. This unit's mind struggling along with the irritative knowledge to calculate the effect on the future of the enclave. It was difficult to do so. Each calculation was accompanied by the feeling of falling suddenly, as though a badly eroded chamber had collapsed under the unit's feet. This unit, our all-extent units, my ascent units, back to when the irritative knowledge becomes difficult to source. We had all known him our entire lives, and through his years we prospered. Sorrow is rare for us. It is not generally a productive emotion. In that moment, this unit felt the sorrow of every unit of the Enclave across thirteen iterations. The Enclave stood frozen. A day passed in this state. The advisor's instructions were productive steps for the situation. 
I began to undertake them. He was wrapped in a woven plant fibers he preferred to lie under for nightly activity, and carried by his unit in another of the melon field where he was discovered, though it was not specified by whom the hole should be excavated. This unit executed the task. It was appropriate. Wherefore we lay the advisor in it. This unit will look again to the stars. The most important knowledge we have encoded from him was the knowledge of how the deep skies changed the weather. Before Switmelin, the enclave was only concerned with the ground. Now we look to the sky as well. It is perhaps the greatest change the advisor caused in us. The melons of the deep sky are aligning. Dew over dry. The rains will slack. But because of the advisor, we have water kept underground. The enclave will not suffer. The barn fibers had slipped from the advisor's face as we carried him. I would be the last of my iterations to see it. I signed slowly to him, burning the memory deep into the irritative knowledge that my descent units would carry. We have learned much from you. This is good. In general, for the enclave and for all of our descent, another rush of slowing chemicals bowed my position. I could not sign for a moment. I recovered enough to continue. Thank you for your years. This unit will lay the advisor in what he'd called a grave. It is not a deep hole, but it is the one he had chosen. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1345. Steve and Daisy. Written by Upgrade. Councillor Brax, we have finished the signal analysis of the destruction of the suppression field around the Terran homeworld, chittered science officer Chuxel. Good, said Brax, his voice peaked. The fleet admirals need to know how the humans managed to take out orbital platform without electricity. T-minus, five minutes to launch, yelled the operator, his voice nearly unintelligible through the long pipe that connected the local launch coordinates to the capsule. Gyro spin up lines pressurized. Colonel Steve Brockton reached above his head and opened up a small brass valve. Compressed air hissed through the lines and several of the pitch and heading indicators spluttered madly for a moment. And carved lettering, zero, ninety, one hundred and eighty, and two hundred and seventy. Nearly perfect, with only a slight scratch inside the eight, betraying the fact that the device had been created entirely by hand. Since the chimmer had decided to isolate, trap, humanity by ruining electricity planet-wide, everything was handmade. Steve tapped the steam pressure gauge, steady, at 3,000 kPa. The residual heat from the repurposed plutonium weapon core heated the 200-liter tank of water just behind his back. After launch, he would pull the separator rod, allowing the halves to come closer to each other, hovering near critically. The nuclear steam reactor would provide 100 kilowatts of thrust and computer for 60 minutes. Then the water would run out. Counselor, it appears the suppression station number one has destroyed in a nuclear detonation. What? roared Brax. How did they achieve nuclear launch, impact, and detonation without electricity? T minus 60 seconds to launch, came the voice through the tube. Umbilical detachment underway. Steve simultaneously squeezed the control stick and tried to relax the rest of his body. He felt the airflow through the cramped cockpit quite to a distressing nothing as the air suddenly felt thick. 
the echoes from the voice tube cut out as he saw the cable gantry crawl away, and riveted iron lurching under hydraulic pressure, arcing from the suppression field snapping miniature lightning between the gantry and the rocket as it detached. The field, as it was called, was, uh, as far as they could tell, a continuous EMP generated by two alien platforms, orbiting opposite each other 500 kilometers up. The enormous current snapping through the ionosphere fried everything from computer ships to power lines. Somehow, even more distressing to the science teams, the effect penetrated Faraday cages. It was a gravitational, somehow strong force nuclear. With the steam, age, tools, no one had been able to figure it out, so the problem was to be solved with violence. Sir, it appears the humans have launched a manned spacecraft into low orbit. The craft was armed. The tiny gyroscopic timer on the right side of the cockpit kept the countdown. The tiny window in front of him showed pure blue sky. The one above his head, he was on his back, showed a tower lurched to the halt. My second countdown, Colonel Brockton pulled the separator rod, and he could taste the plutonium grow white hot. They said he might notice it, but the finality of those dust was discerning. Steam bellowed out of the sides of the capsule portion, and a maniacal clicking dominated the cabin noise as the flight computer spun up. Handmade logic disks of beryllium, fused Seneca control rods only a few hairs thick, and a program tape of carbon fiber began to crunch his position on the second 16-bit computer created on Earth since the suppression. How did it get into space? How did it carry weapons? How did it guide the projectiles? Scans of the cross before destruction of the second station did not detect sufficient shielding to prevent electrical suppression. It seems that the humans launched the spacecraft with entirely mechanical means. The weapons, some sort of torpedo, did not alter course after launch. Why didn't the defenses shoot them down? They only detect projectiles in post-analysis due to their wake. They did not have any active guidance, and they were strongly absorbing to our active senses. Steve's teeth chattered violently under the thrust. The pogo oscillating from the untested rocket threatened to shake the entire thing apart as the clock approached time for Cubax, maximum dynamic pressure. Wild movements of the control stick with both hands directed high-pressure steam to the hydronic steering converters. His eyes pegged on the steering target gimbal controlled by the mechanical flight computer. Come on, Daisy! Hold together! Steve yelled at the computer as the backup gyro exploded from being forced off of its jewel bearing by vibrations. He winced as a piece of plastic, at least it's not glass, he thought, cut his cheek. But the computer held together. Slowly, the worst of the vibrations decayed as the viewport showed the blackness of space. A spring-loaded balance needle, a G-force meter, inched down past the blue line as the thrust of the solid rocket mainstage burnt out. Steve reached down between his legs with both hands and pulled the red lever with both hands, and a faint smell of burnt gunpowder trickled his nose. Less than a second later, a loud bang shook the cockpit as the explosive bolt separated the main stage. The colonel folded his hands on his chest as the second stage lit, the G-forces pushing his eyes back into his skull. The G-indicator pushed up above the red HG line for a few seconds as darkness crept in. The second stage thrust was higher than planned. Likely, the computer kept updating his course, and the four Gs he could reach the stick again and keep the pip on target. What do you mean, wake? 
The torpedoes appeared to use nuclear fuel, plutonium decayed products, as well as chlorine atomic spectra were detected. Our best guess is that they were nuclear saltwater rockets, and they achieved just over 50 Gs of acceleration. Oh, curse the founders! They used mechanical nuclear devices! Steve held the puff on target as the final thrust died down. The launch was timed to be on the horizon between the suppression stations to conceal as much as possible. He had ten minutes to catch up. Clicking, hissing, whining, creaking, bobbling noises filled his ears. He pulled down the targeting periscope and turned the valve to deploy the weapon rails. A reassuring clunk and a tiny mechanical green flag indicated that both sights deployed. His eyes went back to the clock. At T plus fifteen minutes, he double-checked his heading, still in the green, and peered into the eyepiece. The first flash was a second later, less than one degree off-center. Magnesium bombs were set off above the parabolic reflectors in the Arizona desert below to shine on the alien station like a giant flashlight. Once per second for thirty seconds. Steve gently muscled the control stick left, and high-pressure steam tilted the craft to line up with the crosshair on the target. Steve pulled the trigger and the stick and started counting backwards from thirty on each flash. Twenty-nine. Twenty-eight. Daisy screamed into high gear as the fire control computer gyros integrated target motion, platform motion, and simulated orbital trajectory. Steve watched the purely analog solution projection needle start to climb from zero rapidly to thirty, forty, fifty, five, four, three. The solution was above ninety-five percent. One, zero. As the last flash from below made the tiny alien star blink far ahead of him, Steve pulled the second trigger, and the torpedo was away. And one of the wreckage of the station... We assume the humans have salvaged it. This data is over ten years old. I... I was not aware of the delay. Why in Rylock's name happened? The priority header of the last dispatch was corrupted. It was automatically reflagged as no priority and wasn't discovered until an order twelve days ago. Oh, no. It was impossible to see the impact directly due to the window angle. As the ship rotated away to this point, but Steve's heart leapt as he saw the shadow from the flash. Holy crap, he thought. The timer ticked down until the second firing window. Thirty minutes. His heart was pounding too hard for this. The stale cabin air pickled his sweat as the droplets beaded around his eyes. He cracked the oxygen bottle for a moment and relished a few seconds of cool air in the face. A messenger ran up to the scientist and counselor. Sirs, priority message from command. We have multiple unscheduled in-system jump signatures. Steve watched the gyro timer wind down to the last marking and peered through the scope again. Nothing. Still nothing. The flash array in China Highland should be firing by now. The fucking Chinese! Goddamn fuckers! We should never trust... Flash! Oh, you beautiful sons of bitches! Steve shouted to no one. Steve pulled the valve to spin up the torpedo gyros. The gas pressure also popped out of the safety plug, keeping the uranium shells apart. The gun-type detonation mechanism was purely based on impact, so you wouldn't want it to collapse during its launch vibrations. The craft slewed sluggishly on target as he pulled the trigger, and Daisy sprung to life again. The firing solution craft quickly came up to 50% as the crosshairs tracked the tiny flashes. 
Twenty. Nineteen. Nineteen. Come on! As the pressure stopped, he released the trigger as he avoided importing false theta as the target window swept slowly by. No, 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 no. Eighteen. Finally. Seventeen. Sixteen. But then again, it stopped at five. Steve willed the solution above eighty percent, but it would only start as slowly descending. As the timer dinged the end of the illumination window, Steve prayed and pulled the firing trigger. A burst of gas popped and the control disc and the rocket motor, and a heavy spring squirted a solution of plutonium salt water onto a tiny borum carbide strolls into a reaction chamber where the radioactive fluid quickly reached critical mass and superheated. The violently radioactive exhaust gas streaked out the end like a laser, and the torpedo disappeared into the black. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1346. Story number one. Human inadequacy saves the day. Written by Tom Massa. When humanity was first encountered, it wasn't immediately recognized that they were an intelligent species. Their technology was so far below galactic standards that their communication signals were ignored as background radiation and the ships so unstealthy that it was assumed that they were a natural phenomenon. However, contact was eventually made and they were excited to be invited into the Interstellar Union. They were relatively backwards and struggled to keep up and often failed to do so with more advanced members of the Union. However, over the course of 121 years, humans were able to at least bring their technology inadequacies to within two to three generations of our own. This is when the Pukruksu Empire ended a 3,971-year period of isolation and peace and began to expand violently and exterminating any sentient life on planets saying they needed breathing room. Of course, the Union stood united against the threat and we moved to stop them. Immediate mobilization was limited as many worlds near the Paroxu border were swallowed nearly immediately, and there was little that we could do to bring them. The Union was unprepared for military response of this size and began to mobilize a mass force. The Valkruxu likewise moved to solidify their gains, knowing that further conflict was inevitable. They committed a number of cloaked vessels to hunt the vast interstellar trade routes and to attack small and isolated supply ships and troop vessels. They also deployed a massive super dreadnought called the PSM-RCK-01. It was the first of a new class of vessels with enormous firepower. Smaller escort vessels were unable to do any damage to the PSM-RCK-01 before they and the convoy they accompanied were reduced to radioactive ash. Knowing that was such a threat crippled the entire war effort and must be neutralized, a task force was assembled and the humans insisted that they be a part of it. Initially, they were kindly told, no, their forces, while welcome, were far too technologically inferior and could do nothing but die and reveal our locations. Privately, we joked about humans charging with knives drawn into the teeth of machine gun nests. The hard truth was that modern space combat distances were measured in night seconds, and weapons were powerful energy projectors humans were entirely outclassed. They continued to rely on chemical explosive ordnance. The ships were small compared to all other races, but their detection cross-section was two to three times what it should have been due to the ship's poor stealth characteristics. In short, humans would die. Unfortunately, the first sortie to destroy the BSM-RCK-01 went poorly. 
Much of our fleet was destroyed or seriously mangled. It would take months before additional forces could arrive in theater, and that would cause an unattainable loss of material, and the sector would be lost to the Phyrexa, which would make pushing them back to the original borders nearly impossible. If they were going to be stopped, it had to be here, and it had to be now. My colleagues joked that maybe the humans could at least distract the ship for a minute. The briefing was easily one of the most unusual ones that I have ever had the privilege of attending in my long career with the Tekek Navy. The captains of all the vessels uh, participating were in attendance. There were three Creek standing tall in their rebreather suits, six of the Sios in a tight bunch enjoying the closeness of their kind craves, and four Tekek, led by a planning and fifteen human captains scattered about. I'll say this. The humans have an excellent tactical insight and understand their weaknesses and strengths. We knew the relative position of the BSM RCK-01 thanks to some highly sophisticated eavesdropping we had done. The humans volunteered to come from three different directions and attempt to pin the BSM RCK-01 in position to allow the larger guns of the Union fleet to engage the threat. While reckless and suicidally brave of them, this seemed the most sensible choice. They were warned that the size of the BSM RCK-01 was enormous, and that their weapons probably couldn't do more than cosmetic damage. I noted that there were a number of venting areas, control surfaces, and other vulnerable areas that they should target. Two of the humans looked at each other and said, Ditch jog, and slapped their hands together. Translation software still hasn't been able to adapt the human colloquial speech patterns. When the battle was engaged, the humans proved to be even more suicidal than was expected. Scout vessels detected the BSM RCK-01 moving, and the human vessels drove hard towards her. As we got sensor information from our scouts and the humans, our targeting computers began to crunch numbers as we moved into position. Projecting course, speed, direction, etc. With several light seconds lead time gave no clear firing solutions, our ships moved into position while the humans serpentined towards the target. When the BSM RCK-01 opened fire, we were all hugely surprised when they scored no hits. None. Guns that ripped apart our best and brightest continually missed their marks. Often, these misses were narrow in galactic terms, light milliseconds, even microseconds. After tense minutes, second gunnery officer Chokai began laughing and everyone turned to him, seeking explanation. They are too primitive to be shot. Seeing everyone's confusion, he continued, they project a much larger signature than their physical presence, so when the targeting computers aim for the bridge or engines, they are aiming for empty space. They are moving at slower rates than our ships, so targeting isn't adjusting for just how inadequate they are. Reports from the human vessels began to come in. They had launched every weapon they carried against the BSM RCK-01. Although many of the shots struck home and were well aimed, the mass and the armor of the BSM RCK-01 was simply too massive and no fatal or significant structural damage was inflicted. The captain of the Swordfish concluded his report by saying that they were disengaging and maneuvering to avoid the port side of the target and significant damage to maneuvering engines on that side. True enough, we were able to detect that the BSM could only turn left. Chotokai nearly hooted in excitement as he added variables to his targeting system. Suddenly, we had a firing solution. End of story. Story number two. 
Ambush, written by Daymick. Soon the grass planet will be ours, whispered Captain Ayu. The Hummies were winning the war for the grass-covered planet, but Ayu was determined to change that. Shut up, this attack is supposed to be an ambush. E shook her head as the over-enthusiastic captain. It is not like the Humies can hear us anyway. These fancy soundproof suits are worth more than your life. Captain Ayu's ears pressed against his skull as he panted. He had to resist the urge to wiggle with excitement as the Humies came closer. Those bipedal freaks won't know what hit them, he thought. With the roar, he announced, Squadron, attack! Thirty ooze leapt out of the grassy cover. Instead of facing a small pack of surprised and panicked Humies, the squadron faced a small pack of confused but very prepared Humies. The bipedal creatures opened fire and the ooze ambush squad, turning the tables completely. Retreat! screamed Ayu. Retreat! We've been discovered! The squadron fled in failure. How did they do that? thought the captain as he ran for his life. The ambush was supposed to be perfect. The ambush was supposed to be perfect, snarled the general. Hackles raised. He glared at Captain Ayu and the researcher Oi. You mangy pieces of crap better tell me what happened. I don't know, Captain Ayu seemed overcome with despair. The Humies knew that we were coming the entire time. That is impossible. The researcher gave a sniff of dismissal. The environmental suits are flawless. With the tap of her clicker, the large screen lit up. Here is a record of the test run. The envy suits were the exact shade of the tall grass. As you see, the suits blend in perfectly. They're equipped with these best sound. Turn that screen off! The general seemed ready to attack his two subordinates. I know about the features of the suit. You haven't shut up about them for the past two weeks. If the suits are so flawless, then why did your ambush fail? I sniffed again. I suppose the environmental suits are only good as the soldiers wearing them. Captain Bristle. He extended his claws and stepped closer to the unconcerned researcher. The suits failed because of you. I lost half my squad. Impossible. I flicked her tail and turned her attention to the general. Sir, I suggest you try the environmental suits again, but this time send out a more competent squad. She shook her head with disappointment. With that technology, it should be impossible to lose. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how you did it, General Smith, leader of the Human Defense Force, said, looking at Captain Torres with amazement. Ever since the humans colonized the green garden world of Legong, the U had been in constant thorn at their side. How did you manage to defeat an ambush of 70 U with half the troops? It wasn't that hard, ma'am. I saw them from a mile away, the captain shrugged. The feckers were wearing red. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1347. Story double one. Regarding Terran's behavior of late. Written by Fork Off. It has come to my attention that many of the more recent recruits have noticed their Terran counterparts behaving uh, stranger than usual. I can assure you there is no need for alarm. Terra is entering its solstice, and as such the Terrans are participating in their solstice traditions. The practice of bringing a tree into their living quarters is not for urination. The Terrans are still using the appropriate facilities. Rather, gifts to be exchanged on the specific date shall be stored under the tree. 
Terran footwear hung by the exhaust port are meant to be filled with small confections. I brought up the excess power draw from the frankly ridiculous number of small light emitters with the Terran engineering chief. As with previous years, she was apparently unconcerned. Yes, I am aware that this makes even less sense than most of their other traditions. However, at this point, we have no reason to believe that they are in fact uh, screwing with us. As such, being that they are our closest and strongest allies, we have been ordered to simply indulge their eccentricities. Roof Garoof, Alpha of the 181st Security Patrol, Ul Sector. End of story. Story number two. Individually free. Written by Heavy Artillery BTR. What is it with humans and freedom? We never understood the innate desire to be free and to be an individual. You see, I'm a deep. We are a humanoid species like all others, and we share a single eyefight. Our species was artificially linked together, as we had evolved much like the humans did individually. Long ago, we had realized that freedom and individually brought nothing but chaos. Individuals were selfish, greedy, violent, and every other negative adjective out there. So we became one. When we reached the start, we encountered other hive minds. It didn't matter if they were furry, squishy, or covered in chitin. We'd all realized that the price of freedom was too great. We were then secure in our decision. After all, Every other species agreed. How could we all be wrong? Well, almost every other species. Humanity was a curiosity. They were very young when we encountered them. They'd just begun testing the first bastard of the night drive and seemed overjoyed at our arrival. Fleshy, bipedal apes greeted us as we landed on their planet. Their individuals greeted us. It took us a while to establish meaningful communications with the humans. After all, none of my species had spoken for a millennia. Why speak when our thoughts and desires were shared with all? Once the communication problem was dealt with, we had to delve into all the recess of the mind to bring up the old spoken language. We began a cultural exchange. We were extremely curious about the humans it had seemed that a prerequisite for any civilization to develop into a star-faring people was to create a hive mind if one did not naturally occur. After all, how else could a world's resources last unless there was a well-managed and allocated? Humans stood as an affront to every development theory our mind had theorized, and we wanted to find out why. As we exchanged cultures, we delved into their history it was much like ours before the melt. Wars, poverty, and corruption plagued their past. We expected to find that their planet was above average in resource count. After all, how else could it sustain a large, warring population for centuries? However, a single orbital scan showed the amount of resources available on Earth was in fact below galactic average found on habitable worlds. It was shocking. How did the species survive to make it into space? While we were attempting to find the answer to the question, the humans proudly began showing off their cultures. Yes, cultures. Unlike us, unlike every other species, they lacked a single, unified culture. 
It seemed that walking a few paces to the left would bring us to another culture of humans, each with their own customs and traditions. However, perhaps the most interesting thing about these humans was when they joyfully presented us with an archive filled with their history, including every governing document that they could find. As we read through it, we found their early civilization was ruled by simple hereditary hierarchies. That was not out of the ordinary for early civilizations of any species. Hierarchy was a natural state of things. However, as their history progressed, an odd development occurred. It started with a document called the Magna Carta, which cemented the rights of citizens within a sub-civilization known as England. It rebuked the idea that an overall government should have total say. It gave power to the individual. We continued on through the history until we came upon another document named Constitution of the United States of America. It was far more extreme than the Magna Carta. It limited the government massively, dispersing its power, and seemed to go out of its way to protect the individual. As we continued through the history... This idea of importance of the individual continued to grow and spread. Democracies, republics, rights, votes, freedom, they were all truly alien to us. How could these beings decide that the government was meant to protect the individual, not serve the better interests of all people? We asked this question to the human that was helping us through their history. He laughed. But I, a communist, he chuckled. Our translator indicated that was a joke. He looked us in the eye. It is in our nature to be free. Without freedom, we're just a cog in some machine. Freedom lets us humans express who we are. It allows us to decide what kind of person we want to be. Sometimes freedom leads to bad things, yeah. But most of the time, it leads to people striving to make themselves better. Then we had our answer to the question on how humanity survived. In the mind... All are equal. Resources are allocated efficiently and all understand each other and there are no secrets. However, with freedom and the individuality that came with it, there was competition. If our neighbor built a beautiful statue, then why couldn't we build a statue as well? One that was better than the neighbors. This competition was exacerbated by human nature and urged them to develop rapidly. It became apparent that it was no coincidence that human nations that espoused freedom and individuality first came to dominate the planet for many a century. We placed the human development into relative time frame and realized that they had, and were, advancing far faster than any of the hive species, including us. Shaken by this discovery, we said our goodbyes to the humans and left for home. They shortly began expanding throughout their region of the galaxy. They built beautiful ships, grand monuments, and always greeted others with a smile. They entered trading agreements with other species, though a general complaint was how humans always try to get a deal to their advantage instead of the usual fair trade. We nursed them along their journey. In a way, we felt responsible to protect this crazy species, regardless of how vast their domain was. They continued to push on the path of individuality, no matter how decentralized the authority of Earth became. We fully expected their civilization to collapse, and were prepared to step in and mitigate the damage. How could it stand without the proper, efficient management of a hive mind could provide? 
Yet, they prospered, becoming rich and powerful, surpassing every hive mind in technology and ingenuity. Then Draga's mind grew fear. They never truly accepted the humans, their own violent history, before Malding jaded the view on individualists. They fully expected for humanity to become violent, to begin conquering and warring like they had done throughout their history. When humans surpassed all others, the fear turned to panic. If they did not do something soon, humanity would be untouchable. Then Draga attacked humanity, urging the other minds to do the same. Some joined the quest. Others, like us, stayed out of it, though we supported the humans in secret with supply and munitions. What unfolded next haunts the memories of the aggressive minds today. The humans, which had been so friendly and genial to us all, changed. Almost in a single Earth rotation into a cruel and deadly war machine. Their beautiful ships were replaced by black war cruisers, the grand monuments used to rally entire populations to the war effort. It was terrifying to see the creatures that had once laughed and joyfully celebrated our mere existence become monsters in dark metal armor, wielding weapons of war with an efficiently only matched by their cruelty. When the Indraga and their allies meet the humans in battle, they were decimated. True, their minds allowed for more efficient formations and strategies, but they lacked the unpredictability of the humans. To the humans, the minds were predictable. They could anticipate stratagems before they were fully formed in the mind, allowing them to easily adapt their military forces to the situation. Tactics varied between human commanders and leaders, making most effective strategies against them work only once. The minds only won one major battle in the war. Through overwhelming numbers, the only real strategy that the humans could not effectively adapt to. The human defenders of Greth were crushed, but even then, the victory was Perik. The victory was Perik, in which three million bodies were sacrificed to kill ten thousand. The humans burned swaths of space, decimating worlds that resisted, occupying the rest. When the humans finally defeated the mines, they forced the mines to sign an instrument of surrender and reparations. Then, the humans withdrew and returned to the usual benign selves, leaving the ruined attackers as a testament and a warning. Now, twenty standard cycles later, we ponder. Humans have established their superiority in the galaxy. There's even talks of a pan-galactic federation headed by humanity. As we look up at the stars, we wonder how humanity became imbued with such power. They were not overly intelligent or physically durable. They did not wage any war besides the Indraga conflict, so they did not gain much through military conquest. How had they surpassed us in every field, making our best technology look primitive compared to theirs? As we studied the stars above our world, we came to realize the answer. We may have knew it all along. A decision was made. We stood and reached behind our head with a small prick pain. We removed the transmitter in the back of our neck. All at once, the thoughts of our people vanished. We 
were alone in the night for the first time ever. At first, we felt fear, but then it subsided as the night curled around us, as we looked up into the sky, and we smiled and thanked humanity. They taught us the value of I. I understand now. I am an individual. And I am free. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1348. Story number one. The Victory, written by Shogun CDN. Captain Race looked over to his comm officer, Phillips, who shook his head slowly. The entire bridge was eerily silent. Ninety bodies filled the cavernous nerve center of the UEA Victory-class cruiser, Shepard. Yet, it was as if the room was filled with mannequins. The air was stifled by the tension. Lieutenant Ada, Captain Ray said, staring ahead at the view screen showing the green-gray planet below. Send it. Aye, sending. Came the response from Ada, and the ship rocked slightly as the thump of the main railgun accelerated its 500-kilogram hardened titanium payload towards the planet at over 5,000 meters per second. A bright orange bloom lit up the surface where the projectile hit. In a blink, over a hundred thousand lives were erased. Around them, in space, the wreckage of hundreds of ships, humans, and their allies, Andrash, littered the darkness. The remnants of what was supposed to be the final battle in a long war. Most were broken and dead, some still spouting flames as they died. Earth and her alien allies had won, and the Drosh had been beaten back, and countless systems had been freed from enslavement. The Prime, the planetary Drosh government, could do nothing but surrender. But the Drosh were as violent and intractable in defeat as they were in victory. The same belief in their own superiority over every other species now fueled their resistance. The Alliance had won the war, but despite their numerical advantage, it had come at a great cost. Now here, on the doorstep of victory, their foe would not surrender, even in the face of certain defeat. Earth's entry into the galactic community was supposed to have been a joyous moment for humanity. Instead, it plunged the humans into a fifty-year war that they were not ready for. It had exhausted their resources, and at times, it seemed, almost driven them to the point of extinction. The UEA had nothing left except for a few dozen ships. Earth and Mars were her only surviving worlds. There were not even enough soldiers left for a protracted ground battle. Orbital bombardment was the only option to force the surrender of the Drush. And yet, they would not. The Shepard had been in orbit over the planet for almost sixteen hours, smashing the planet with ordnance launched at subluminal speeds, while its sister ships patrolled Drush space, destroying any stragglers. Most capital ships were either dead or dying, and the role of bringing the Drosh to heel had been given to Shepard, as she had the largest gun remaining in the fleet. Millions upon millions on the planet had died or were dying, their cities being smashed to rubble, and still the Drosh defined them. 
Minutes passed. After the last shot, and as the timer ran down, Captain Reyes looked again at Phillips, who could barely move his head. Lieutenant Ida, send it, came the command. He had lost track of how many times he'd given that order that day, and the thump did not come, however. Captain Shepard looked over to his weapons officer. Her shoulders were slumped, and she was trembling. Lieutenant Ida, Race repeated, send it! Tears began to fall down Ida's face silently. Other staff who had noted that it was going on also began to weep as though a dam had burst. Ray's moved from his command post to the weapons chamber. He placed a hand on Ida's shoulder. You are dismissed, Lieutenant, he said gently. Lieutenant Ida looked up at him. I'm, I'm sorry, sir. There's just so many. What are we doing? I... You have nothing to be ashamed of. Leave your post. That's an order. He replied, helping her out of the chair. He then turned towards his crew. That goes for everyone else here who feels the same way. You will not be reprimanded in any manner if you feel that you cannot perform your duties. But I cannot have you on the bridge. Slowly, some of the crew began to leave their posts. He waited silently as the crew members piled past him. Most stopped to try and offer an apology. Some could only look at him mournfully. When the exodus stopped, only about sixty remained. As you were, Reyes said. The exer made a move to the weapons chamber, but Reyes waved him off and sat down in the chair. This was rightfully his responsibility, he thought to himself. Then he keyed in the firing sequence. Sanding! With a push, he sent a hundred thousand or so more drosh to the deaths. Men, women, children, old, sick, helpless. They had long ago run out of military targets and were now targeting population centers. The Prime could surely see the bodies and smell the death. Why won't they seed? Reyes asked himself. He pleaded silently with them to put an end to this. It was several more hours until Phillips finally held up his hand. The Prime was surrendering. Captain Reyes removed his hand from the fire control and gripped the table to stop them from shaking. The shepherd's ammunition stores had been nearly depleted. The planet below was marked by hundreds of fires visible even from space. Its atmosphere was dark with ash and dust. By now, only about a dozen crew remained on the bridge, including the officer from the hoth. The chameleon-like creature glowed a bright orange. It is done, Captain. We have won. The drosh will no longer foul our planets. We have achieved something great today, the hoth said excitedly. Captain Ray simply stood up, made his way to the exit. You have the bridge, he said to the hoth. Sir, I, I don't understand. We, we have won, haven't we? The hoth asked as the captain's form disappeared into the corridor. End of story. Story number two. No, really, I'm an evil genius. Seriously. Written by Apophis Pegasus. I am a terrible evil genius. <laughs> Don't let the throne and the sinister lad and the long black hook fool you. I suck at the gig. Now, I know it is not something to be ashamed of, usually, but what do you do when your childhood dreams are dashed? Want to know the worst part? 
It's not even the genius part that I'm bad at. It's the evil. Who in the hell can be bad at being evil, I ask you? Apparently, this guy. You see, it all started when I was a wee lad tinkering around with Legos and trying to build ray guns out of my parents' microwave. Like many involved loving parents, they asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, being full of youthful innocence and having a decent sociopathic streak, gleefully replied, Conqueror of Afghanistan. When right there, my parents should have taken me to a psychologist and had me checked out. Tell me that conquering countries is not a nice thing to do. Yes, annexing did count. I wasn't Russia. And to focus my interests more on productive matters like cooking a Pop-Tart from across the room... Instead, they raised their eyebrows, shrugged and chuckled. Oh, that was a good joke, kiddo. And then they got me a 15 9-volt batteries for my railgun, and it was all downhill from there. Growing up, I was pretty big loner. Kept to myself, read a lot, tinkered about in the science lab, like any disenfranchised future supervillain should. But instead of being bullied or ostracized, my peers were... nice... No heads down the toilet, no stolen lunch money. Sure, there may have been a mild teasing from a couple choice people, but on the whole, no decent. Now the teachers, oh, they were worse. They were supportive. I wanted to build a robot, sure. I wanted to make a pocket fusion react and go right ahead. Just use the furthest lab from the students and have the fire extinguisher ready. Oh, for the love of heaven, I told them I wanted to buy an engineer a dragon. They asked if there was anything that they could do to help. <laughs> School time made up some of my fondest childhood memories. It was terrible. University was even worse. There, my dastardly exploits weren't just supported, but encouraged. Built my first droid army there. Boss walked past my college days. I was knowledgeable and armed with funds from my selling of certain inventions. Turns out some countries really like droid infantry. Who knew? Mucked about for a couple years building up my forces, created a super serum in case I ever needed to get physical, and at the now tender age of 30, I set out on my childhood goal. Turning Afghanistan into my own personal playground. And I did it too. Took me a week. A business week, at that. Saturday morning, I was sipping a coke, swinging my legs off the roof of the National Assembly building. Then, I rebuilt Kabul. Don't give me that look. It was messy. Dust everywhere. And quite frankly, its urban planning left much to be desired. If I was going to be the overlord of a country, I was going to have sure going to be an overlord of a clean and well-organized one. And the battle droids were great for manual labor. So Kabul rebuilt, took me a month, moved on to the surrounding areas, built those back up too, better than before. Then I moved on to the surrounding villages and remote areas, built some roads while I was at it, and um, some better hospitals. So um, Afghanistan rebuilt, all nice and shiny, time to rule. So I reinstated the president, then the Afghan parliament, do you know how much time and effort it takes to run a country, especially one the size of Afghanistan? I needed help, and they weren't bad sorts, really. Except for the corrupt ones, uh, when I found out uh, remote brain scanners are great. They got to jail. So I messed around there for a while, 
doing experiments, asking my minions to do stuff, uh, demanding seemed uncouth. You know, the, the usual. Locals seemed to like me, for some reason. Probably because I kept the caliban in check. But then, I got the bloodlust again. So, I invaded Iran. This took me a shorter amount of time to set up my standards, but it was still a fun thing to do. But much like Afghanistan, the old wandering stall stirred again, so I went after Iraq. And Kazakhstan. And Kazakhstan. And Pakistan. That one was a bit touchy. And, um, India. More touchy. Mongolia, and the entirety of the West and South Asia. By then, I'd systemized the whole shebang, and could get relief efforts up and running in less than a day. So, um, a couple of years uh, of becoming one of the undisputed powers of the planet, people started getting itchy trigger fingers. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1349. Story number one. War Games, written by Shogun CDN. Admiral Vernus stared at the screen mutely. The fleet was at a standstill over the fourth planet in the system. By his orders, this was to have been a simple mission. They had done this countless times in their history, and this should have been no different. And yet it was. Protocol dictated that the invasion should have begun long ago. Probes had detected a resource-rich planet and no hyperdrive signatures anywhere near the solar system. The Admiral had gained his position through a number of usual factors, intelligence and hard work amongst them. But he had prided himself on his curiosity, something many of his people lacked. They had been dominant in the galaxy for so long, most of his people had simply come to accept that the galaxy was simply there to provide for them. For generations, fleets like the one he commanded had scoured the stars, subjugating races they encountered and taking the riches of their planets for their own people. Any resistance was dealt with quickly, and they were unmatched in their military might. There were a few dozen species that had developed hyperdrive technology. His people had defeated a few and made alliances with the rest. The terms of the alliance were always one-sided, and amounted to no more than voluntary servitude, but had accomplished the same thing and saved some time and resources that a protracted engagement may have required. He should have reported on the progress of the battle long ago, and yet he had not, because his curiosity made him review some of the transmissions from the third planet. What he saw almost made his blood freeze. The door to his chamber chimed, and he motioned it open. Captain Tuan bowed gracefully before entering. The captain was a veteran of several campaigns and a competent and unimaginative commander who did well enough when following orders and protocols. The Admiral had little hope for the captain to do much more than he was told, but the fleet had never been challenged enough to test most of its commanders. Admiral, I apologize for the interruption, but we have held the position for several cycles now, and the strict communication silence you ordered, but... The captain faltered at the last, even suggesting that you were questioning superior officer could land you lifelong garbage duty, regardless of your position. Admiral Vonus waved a long, slender arm, directing the captain's attention to the screen. The captain watched in silent images. His eyes widened, and a slight cap formed in his mouth. Is this- Yes, the admiral replied. 
This is the current transmission from the planet. Captain, what is the protocol for a mission such as ours? The captain snapped to attention, his training kicking in. Arbiter bombardment is softened defenses followed by ground invasion. Once control of the planet is established, the indigenous species isn't intelligent enough. They'll be put to work collecting resources. If not, they are turned into reserves. Correct. And despite the split, it is a ground invasion that is key. For all that we may do from space, unless we control the ground, our mission cannot succeed. True? The Admiral asked. Uh, of course, sir, replied the captain. So, how do you think that our ground forces would fare against that? The Admiral said, gesturing again to the screen. The captain again watched an unimaginable violence played out before him. The species of this planet seemed to have an incredible appetite for battle, and the forces that they threw against one another was something that he had never witnessed. The species attacked each other with power at speed and he could not comprehend. They were bulky and thickly muzzled and did not seem to tire. He looked at his own thin arms and delicate chestplate and wondered how long he might last if he encountered one of these creatures in battle. Just as we temper our metals in fire and pressure, this hostile planet has created something we have never seen. Perhaps long ago our people may have been their equals, but we've grown weak over the eons, too dependent on our technology to have been made soft in comparison. We have not walked through the fire in a very long time, Captain. This species revels in it. Our soldiers would not last one cycle against behemoths such as this, the Admiral said. But we detected no hyperdrive. Could we not simply maintain orbital bombardment until they capitulate? The Captain asked. From what I have seen, by the time that happened, the planet would be unusable for us, all them. Well, our subjects are currently docile. If they were to find out that we committed genocide, we would find ourselves with revolts on many fronts. No, Captain, there is only one cause of action we can take. Leave the system and pray that it is a very long time before these uh, humans discover hyperdrive technology. We can only hope that when we meet them, they'll accept our terms of alliance. If not, the Admiral trailed off, leaving the thought unfinished. Set calls for home, Captain. We need to report on this and quarantine the sector. The Admiral commanded. The Captain exited quickly, and the Admiral turned his attention back to the screen. He let out an involuntary shudder before turning off the screen, as the last image flickered the score that read... Giant 17, Cowboys 21. End of story. Story number two. Inquiries written by Satoshi. Rice had just finished tidying up his composure when one of the captives he was guarding began to snigger again. Turning about, he stalked up to the two Imperials locked away in their cell. Shut up! Oh, lighten up, rebel boy. The one called Aza chided. Her cellmate Doran was the one who'd been making the noise. Both of them were Darvarin, with their characteristic strong builds and ashen skin. The guard resisted the urge to whip out his pistol. Yeah, prisoners! You're imperial wretches! Start acting like it! Aiza leaned back with the grice, assumed was a mocking offense. Why, my dear friend here was just having a laugh, weren't you, Doran? Prisoners aren't supposed to be having laughs, Griff spat back. 
Doran answered, yeah, yeah, rebel boy. I was just thinking the last time someone dragged Jennifer into an interrogation room. Jennifer, their third companion, Grice remembered, and a human woman currently being interrogated. <laughs> Trying to tithe me, huh? Grice ventured. Typical Imperial mind games. The guard strolled away from the cell door. Suit yourself, Doran said with a shrug. A minute of lackluster silence tickled on. Finally, Grice settled back towards the cell. What happened last time? With Jennifer in the interrogation room, I mean. Doran locked his gaze on Grice before his mouth split into a grin and he started laughing again. Liza just shook her head and gave Grice a coy smile. Why don't you just see for yourself, Rebel Boy? See for myself. He glanced at the interrogation room door. Yeah, go and look, Liza prodded. She's probably already making quick work of your pal in there. Ah... You almost got me, Grice laughed, a little more nervously than he attended. Damned Imperials! He walked away from the cell door, deciding not to let the prisoners muddy his thoughts. But as he stood there, the gears in his mind began to whir into motion. Maybe the human woman had a concealed weapon. Maybe she had some sort of inherent ability previously unknown. What if she was overpowering Grice's colleague, Roll, at this very moment? No... That was impossible. The guard was just starting to shake such a dark thoughts from his head when he heard the weeping come from the interrogation room. But he knew the voice. It wasn't the woman's. Ripping his pistol from its holster, Grice dashed to the door and slammed it open. He spotted Rell, who had tears trickling from his eyes. And Rell was sitting in the interrogation table where Jennifer stroked the man's shoulder with a gentle hand. And that's the last thing I said to him, Rell lamented between breaths. His voice damp with remorse. We haven't seen each other in years, and we used to be so close. A few tears slid down his face again, hardly fitting for someone in his position. People just drift apart sometimes, Jennifer said in a tone that Christ found oddly soothing. Neither she nor Raoul seemed to find Christ's entrance noteworthy, but they don't have to, you know. You can try finding him again. Raoul shook his head. I doubt that he would want to speak to me. That's what I thought about my sister, Jennifer replied. Turns out she was thinking the exact same thing about me. Now we're almost as close as we were when we were children. Really? You, uh, you really think that that could be the case for me too? Raoul snuffed. Well, more likely than not. Jennifer smiled, then looked up as if just noticing the armed guard that had burst into the doorway. Oh, hello, Mr. Grice, please. Don't think any less of your friend here. Even the strongest soldiers need to shed some tears. Step away from the prisoner, Grice warned. What did you do? We were just talking, Jennifer professed, with her hands raised, her face growing stoic. Roll nodded with a seeming appreciation. Talking, huh? Talking! Seems like all you Imperials do is talk. He leveled his physical sight straight at her heart. Get back to the cell now! Just a little while longer, Mr. Grice. Get back to the cell or I will gun you down right now. Jennifer donned a solemn expression. You just shoot me, like this. I wonder what your wife would think. My, my, my wife, Grice stuttered. How in the hell did she know that? Does she think highly of what you do? Quiet! Your wife doesn't approve of any of this. Isn't that right? Shut up! Isn't that right? Grice scoffed. She, uh, she thinks that the Imperium is in the right, and that I'm an idiot for joining this rebellion. I should be talking with this woman, he thought. But you want to fight for the rebel cause because you believe in it more than you believe in her. 
The man stared, her words biting into his mind. His pistol arm inched downwards, suddenly, heavy. No, she just doesn't get it. Jennifer leaned forward. Oh, what doesn't she get? I'm doing this for her, Christ answered, unable to contain himself. He tried to drudge up the rebel calls from his mind, but all that surfaced was the paycheck and the image of his wife, alone in their tiny home. How long has it been since you've seen her? Jennifer asked. Too long. The human woman gestured to the open chair next to Ruel. Want to talk about it? Surprisingly, Grice found himself sitting down. Three days later, Jennifer and her team arrived at the nearest Imperial base, with several new defectors. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1350 Story number one. What Terror's Hell Holds Written by Runya P. Once, there was a small, peaceful, remote village down in a small, peaceful, remote valley. Its inhabitants wholly insignificant to passing eyes. Amongst those who lived there were the beloved group of old men. The old men and their everyday routine were well known to the villagers. Every morning, the old men would gather in the village's only coffee shop, always sitting in their unspoken designated area. They were the happiest-looking bunch of old men anyone could hope to see, and they would spend the majority of their days playing flips, drinking tea, reading the latest newspaper, and debating with each other about one thing or another. They were more than happy to share their stories with anyone who might be interested to sit down and have a cup of tea with them. They were delightful, and everyone was delighted to have them around. Even as the years rolled by, and there were fewer and fewer old men each year, as the village grew and grew, they still continued their routine, smiling, drinking tea, reading newspapers, and playing flip. Sadly, their simple lives would not last forever, and something drastic managed to throw a wrench into the everyday routine. Namely, Judgment Day. Honest to God's daemons crawled out of the ground in the middle of the town and declared that they were going to take everyone's souls down to hell. It was a slaughter. The once peaceful town was filled with the screams of men, women, and children alike, and the streets littered with bodies of the dead. Rivers of blood washed down their drains, so much that it clogged them up. And to make it worse, the arch-fiend that led the incursion let out laughs, sent chills down people's spines. And then there were the old men, jolly, delightful old men, marching down the bloody streets, clad in their ages-old dress uniforms, armed with well-kept service rifles that were almost as old as themselves. At first, the demons were confused, now Ruberbell considered himself a gentle daemon. He would properly play and have fun with his prey before he tortured them and ripped them limb from limb. Normally, the humans were supposed to be running away from him, not towards him. This confused Ruberbell greatly. As he stood there, dumbstruck, thunderclaps of gunfire shook him back to reality. The old men delivered well-practiced bodies with their rifles. Shaky, senile hands and cloudy eyes worked the bolts with muscle memory, 
delivering a continuous stream of lead downrange, smiting lesser demons with lead that ripped arms off of men before. Riverbale rallied his underlings then, having them charge at the old men. Fireballs and lightning bolts were thrown their way, praying hearts and burning flesh, crumbling aged bones and ending lives. But the remaining old men did not stop their volleys, nor did they flinch as their lifelong friends died by their sides. By the time the last bullet had been fired from their rifles, there was only the arch-fiend Rubervale left. The terrible monster fell upon the brave old men, rending flesh and bones alike with bloodlust. Yet the old men did not flee, and the screams that were their last were not shrieks of horror, but were war cries as they jabbed their bayonets into the seemingly unstoppable demon. They fought, they died, and the others watched, until there was only one man left. His bayonet broken, a piece of it stuck in Ruberbell's stomach. Still, he stood defiant against the terrible creature who looked down at him, snorting hot air from hell itself. Why are you not afraid, mortal? Are you not afraid of eternal damnation that I am bringing you? Ruberbell questioned this insolent mortal. It mattered little if the old man answered his question out of his own free will or not. Ruberbell would have his answers. Gazing deep into the soul of the old man, Ruberbell searched through his memories. He saw peaceful rolling plains and mountains. He saw smiling faces of family members. A usual worthless things these humans cherished so much. Then he looked deeper, further back into the past. He was in a great open field now, but they were not peaceful rolling plains of greenery. Instead it was dark, brown, and grey, lifeless, cold, and uncaring, with the large gaping holes in the very earth that seemed to be permanently filled with sickish mud. But there was more than that. Riverbell's eyes widened, and he let out a silent gasp, as he saw the bigger picture, he saw the bodies of friends and enemies alike lay dead or dying in the very mud that he stomped through right now. Some were still drowning in their hole, too weak to pull themselves out. He did not understand what was going on. Why would anyone in their right mind walk through such a nightmarish field? It made him homesick for the comforting warmth of hell. Already, Riverbell wasn't given enough time to think of Hal so much, however, as he heard an unfamiliar whistle that seemed to come from far away. The humans were shouting something, but he wasn't listening. His host had dropped into the mud. What had happened? Was he hurt? Did he die? It couldn't be. The demon knew that the man survived long enough to be held in his claws right now. The world around him exploded. Dirt, mud, and body parts were thrown high into the sky and rained down upon him and his friends. He felt a wet spat landing on his back, and he dared not look to see what it was. He just stayed still, held his helmet tight, and waited. He waited and waited for long minutes that felt like eternities. The world exploded until all was silent. 
He wanted home now. He wanted nothing more but to stop this, just to go back to hell, where it was nice and safe, where the world does not explode around him and rain pieces of his friends on him. But he couldn't. It was like watching a train wreck. He couldn't put himself away. His host stood up after an order, and they marched forward still along a seemingly endless dead, mutilated fields of bodies and mud, where the dying were mewling out weak cries for help, but he knew that they were far gone. It made the demon feel sick to his stomach. He wanted to whimper. And then the thunders, the horrible, horrible, crackling thunders, friends both close and far, screamed in pain as invisible force tore at them, ripping them into bloody pieces and chunks. Ruverbell was screaming then, screaming for his host to turn around, to run away from whatever was causing such a horrible death to everything around them. But Ruverbell was just a passenger, and he could only watch helplessly as more and more friends fell in the mud. Then uh, there was a loud, sharp whistle, and everyone ran. They ran as hard and as fast as their legs could carry them. Bayonets pointed forward, and then he heard the war cries of the humans, as terrible as any of the hellish beasts he knew, if not more so. Through the crackling thunder, through the invisible force of death, they looked at death in the eyes, and charged. Rivervale gasped in air then, as he felt himself back to where he was, holding an old man in his large claws. His hold felt weaker now, as if the strength had been robbed from him. He looked at the man in his grip. The man looked back at him, and he found himself wanting. The last old man still held his rifle tightly, gripped in his hands, his eyes burning with life and fire that he thought long extinguished. I have already survived hell, and its name is Verdun. End of story. Story number two. The sad, sad tale of Floyd the Cosmic Horror, written by Scotson. It was the laughing stock of the galaxy. Floyd a.k.a. the bringer of a million sorrows, the dead son, the old pain, once again was suffering a round of mocking from his fellow stellar deities. Star-sized biomasses and gargantuan fleets of immortal machines alike rifed his little defeat. Can't deal with a little scab, one scoffed. My, my, the great Floyd brought down to this another guffawed. You suck, screamed one of the more blunt abominations. Floyd said nothing, simply bearing the insults, knowing full well he deserved it. He was once the greatest of them all, building great palaces of pain and misery, crushing them with fire, poison, and ash when even the smallest seeds of hope began to spring forth. But when his attention was turned just for a moment, he noticed new things, and he knew their tears would sustain him forever. But they were stubborn. Nothing worked. Not earthquakes, not disease, not daily disembowelment, not even plunging an asteroid into his own flesh. It was remaining. It was spreading. It was malignant. Another round of laughs filled the silent roar of space, 
No words left, Floyd? Mun asked in a haughty tone. Floyd had been silent for millions of years, though to the great old ones it was merely a few passing moments. Though, still listening, his thoughts were inward. How could he not kill them, cleanse them, obliterate them? Every attempt just made them stronger. He thought more, ignoring the stinging sensation of his own skin. They reminded him of himself, actually, a lot like himself. They even had a name for him, even if he thought it was weird. Then it hit him. He... he loved them. I think he's dead, one of the great writhing masses observed after Floyd's refusal to speak. Floyd turned his thoughts outwards, speaking to every horror in the galaxy. I am not dead, and my name is not Floyd. My name is Earth, Floyd said, while millions of lights began to spring from his flesh and surround him like a storm of fireflies. And I would like you to meet my children. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1351. Story Double One. Sentient. Written by Jabarthing. We were first made aware of Damsius Three, known by the inhabitants as Earth of Sol, during the 14th expedition of Namar Cordius into the Hegna Po cluster. Since it was discovered by we the Valance, we claimed the Damsius system and gave it the namesake of our illustrious leader. Damsius the Wise. Damsius III was intended to be a way station for our fleets as we expanded further into the cluster. I was assigned to the colony as a security alpha and was to begin preparing it for colonization. We'd known that the planet was currently held by self-labeled humans, though we could not understand them at the time and gave them the name of Otani, Softwalkers. However, Many of our lower-level staff who dealt with them on a regular basis referred to them as Otabli, soft thralls. They were a simple, non-advanced species that we had dealt with in the past. Primitive technology and outdated social orders. I still stand firm by our decision to mark them as non-sentient due to the lack of extrasolar activity. I was ordered by my higher alpha to prepare a region for colonization and to ensure that the Otani did not interfere with the project. My first goal was to clear the site of obstacles. Otani have a penchant for use of solidified rock paste in their construction. They proved resistant to most of our demolition equipment. When we arrived, they seemed curious and afraid. Some approached us with what we later realized was enthusiasm. On the basis that we assumed that these species had no sense of self-preservation, a trait I still say holds true. We began the process of demolition of these structures and were satisfied that the Otani were sapient enough to flee from danger. As we ran behind schedule and the Otani began resisting our movements, I ordered that we use mining lasers from orbit to prepare our colonization site. Even after we landed, it only took an hour for the Otani to begin returning to their brooding sites. I realized that they had no concept of object permanency and had assumed that once they no longer saw us, that we had left. 
I felt exhausted after the first rotation of the planet. The Otani kept coming back. Some of them would use primitive weapons, but they were ineffectual against our environmental suits. Once the site was clear, we ran tests on the atmosphere and foliage to ensure that we would no longer be at risk. Workers arrived as scheduled, and the process of building the colony was underway. Adani nests popped up in the surrounding bush. I oversaw a security team as we investigated the nest. They had woven fabric over metal structures and had packed as many as they could into it. It was appalling how barbaric they lived. We needed to ensure that they didn't begin producing more rock hives like the ones we demolished earlier. We began with the lava. A researcher who insisted on joining us determined that their lava could produce a sonic frequency capable of temporarily reducing their minds to base fight or flight. As we attempted to dispose of the lava, the Otani rushed us with reckless abandon. They attacked with anything they had on hand, or even their own fleshy manipulators. It was tragic how aggressive the Otani were. We tried to be reasonable with how we dealt with the nests, but we were convinced now that the Otani were a lost cause, a violent and barbaric species incapable of base rational thought. It was after this that I realized the scale of the Otani infestation that we were dealing with. I requested any reserve that could be brought on hand to help us with this horrible species. The Otani rely on rapid thermal exchange as their primary technological method. It makes sense, given their overall lack of any sentience, that they'd use such an inefficient and simple method. We began using mining lasers to reduce their major hives over the planet to ensure that when we colonized the area, we would not have to deal with an organized hive and instead have simpler nests to deal with. Our priority was still the lava, though. Our researcher had begun tests on Otani brooding methods and lava. He was shocked to discover that two almost entirely different types of Otani were capable of brooding a single lava, and then that less than a full rotation of the planet, they were capable of producing once again. Sometimes a single lava, or a clutch of two or more. Some of our guards discovered that the Otani were excellent source of entertainment, and while I personally found this practice distasteful, it was hugely beneficial for morale. I was beginning to suspect that we'd found the secret to dealing with the Otani. That was, of course, before they gained sentience. The Otani, as it turned out, were unusually capable of using equipment that had been abandoned. Power cores were traditionally abandoned due to weight and practicality. They were spent of most of the energy and presented no obvious danger. The Atani, being so devoid of self-preservation instincts, would handle these calls with only barbaric rags and would even outright attack us to get power calls. We assumed, since they had an anomalous amount of cobalt in their atmosphere, that they relied on radiation to survive. The Otani had a unique but infuriating ritual around discarded power calls. They would rush forwards towards a patrol or a group of us and throw the call back at us. We at first believed that it was some form of worship and felt more than a little bit flattered. Uh, that is, until the faulty power core detonated and killed all of my security detail but me. 
They continued using power cores in this manner until they learned how to use it in place of their traditional burning method of technology. I had realized too late what the Otani were. Despite their neglect of survival, in the face of the laughingly inept technology, they were somehow sentient. They could feel. They could think. Perhaps they were influenced by our own presence. Whatever the method of their development, it was uncanny. Their weapons, which at one time were nothing more than children's toys or novelties, had evolved. They were dangerous. Our colony had quickly been overrun by them. On my last day on that wretched planet during the Great Otani Raid, I saw it in their eyes. As a sentient to a sentient, we had all been blinded by arrogance. I saw anger in their eyes. We, violence, are passionate people. Our poets and artists, the foremost in the galaxy. Yet, when I looked into those eyes, it dawned on me why we could not understand them. When one stands on a planet, they cannot see the planet. Their passion, their inner fire, so bright as to leave everything else in darkness. What disgust I had for dealing with them was met a hundredfold in hatred. They butchered us. To them we were nothing more than flesh. I abandoned my alphas and my subordinates in terror. I left them to the hands of the Atani. I plead of you, higher alpha. I beg for execution. Please spare me from the Otani. Final words of Enderis Kull, former security alpha of Damsius III. Sentenced to death on the former colony in light of new Sentience Classification Act. End of story. Story number two. We create our own demons, written by British Tea Company. It's funny. Five years ago, you can't even remember the names humans gave their ships. Aurora, Bastion, Guardian, Protector. You look at them now, and you wonder, what changed? Eradicator, Petabation, Ravager, Harrower. And I can tell you, they met two races... First, they met the Drath, and then we met the humans. Humans first picked up Drath communications in the year 2195. Excited in naive eagerness about the prospect of other forms of intelligent life in the galaxy, a delegation was sent to the Drath homeworld to begin first contact protocols against their new friends. Not surprisingly, those delegates never returned. It's safe to say that the Drath probably found them, uh, delicious. They didn't take long before the Drath found the fledgling human civilization. Billions of their people were lost in the coming months. As a newcomer to the galactic stage, humans were behind in technology and manpower. Before the year was out, every human colony save for Mars and Earth herself had been destroyed. Their populations either sent to harsh slave camps or cannibalized. It was a sorry chapter that got repeated time and time again. We were sick of it. Every species that lies behind us and the Drath had never found the looming threat of those monsters, ancient and venerable as we so happened to be. The Drath could never hope 
to defeat us. But every species that weren't behind our protection, they were nothing but helpless against these barbarians, and it was time that we put a stop to it. We sent the humans, our technology, told them that we were there to help. We came right in the nick of time too, because just as the Martian colony was evacuated, Earth had managed to create a planetary barrier which would be impenetrable to the best efforts of the Drath. The humans were saved. Maybe not in an ideal way, but at least their lives could continue. And continue they did. Trapped behind their bubble, the humans were safe to poke around with the shield that we had given them. In what had taken our race a thousand years to deduce, the humans had figured out in just two after looking over at our gift with much attention, they found out the source of its power and the means to recreate it. While the Drath never saw it coming, we had always kept a probe on Earth just to see what the humans would do behind their shield. They would not be idle as the newfound source of energy boosted their economy. They dug deep into their world, mining every precious bit of mineral as they rebuilt their armies and geared for their return. In less than three years, humanity assembled a mighty starfleet, which would take other races' entire generations to construct. When the shields finally fell, so did the Drath civilization. The first of the human ships, Eradicator, nameship of the Eradicator-class battleship, revealed itself as it opened fire with a diffusing null lance, a single beam of dark energy split into many thousand prongs of energy shattered the Drath invasion fleet. From Earth's surface, thousands of these black ships rose into space and set off straight for various Drath worlds. Their race was rendered extinct with the days. We have rid the galaxy of the Drath. They have since disappeared into the void. Their worlds crumble underneath the bombardment of human armadas, in their stead, we have made another race. The Human Empire now carves out much of the fallen Drath territory and has expanded to 160% of the size of what the Drath used to be. No civilized races lie close to their borders, but as we've created this new monster, we must be prepared to what happens when ultimately this new predator finds itself bordering potential prey. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1352. Story number one. Preemptive defense, written by Sparrowhawk. Fingers of neon blue crossed above the trench. Bright and terrible, their demonic touch, intolerant of obstruction as they carved through the landscape. Iom was bleeding. One of the accelerated breams had grazed him. Not even that, a graze or graze. Beam shadow afterglow, and it had greedily tore through the tighter steel triple plating of his hull jacket, bursting apart the keratin scales below and painting the dirt green with blood. It had been a suicide mission. Computerized troops prohibited in a million mile radius for fear of the narrow wave EM viral corruption, even extending to a pair of orbital gunships. Ridiculous, and the proof was clear. Io, Oima, Nayo, Ari, all dead, ruined, fecking, obliterated. And for what? They claimed barely half a mile towards the central processor. 
Whoever heard of trench warfare in the goddamn so-called 21st century? His open wound was salted with humiliation, while their enemy was of their own making. The experimental viral program designed to override enemy computer systems, repurpose them for their own use, and wreak havoc. Nobody could deny that it was effective. The demon pattern, they had called it, and laughed as they planned to unleash it against the human upstarts eating into the galactic territory. But it had escaped, seizing command of their vast array of war machines, and their pleas for aid to the United Galactic Governance had fallen on deaf ears. Who, in their right mind, would ever volunteer for a battle that they could not even use their auto-weapons for? Zero computerization. Actual people used to fight. Hell, barbaric. Crashing rush of burning thunder and Iom was in the dirt. Blurred vision gifted sky-tinged Cherenkov blue in the wake of ionic artillery fire. Singed air fusing into ozone. Tympanic ringing faded into the regularly scheduled screaming. Iom didn't want to get up. The battle was over. Three quarters of his division lost, taking this pathetic half a mile, and by the sounds of those screams, the last quarter was soon to follow. These people, doomed to extinction at their own hands, not even able to escape the planet for their ship's gripped tight in the grasp of the demon pattern. Another terrible crashing thunder followed, but Iom was done. Let it end, he thought to himself. Get up! A voice was monotone. Speaker crackled translation. Iom looked up. The figure towered over him, rocking out the sky. Suited up in rain-gray hull jacket, accented blue, visor of starless night, gun over the shoulder, two arms, two legs, hand outstretched, the figure stood in front of a sleek orbital drop pod, the foremost of many others, and Iom realized what the second crash had been. He reached for the hand. But were our casualties destroying the processor? Zero, ma'am. Beautiful. Counselor and Admiral stood alone in the room, sparkling champagne held in crystal glass, celebration of a successful operation. With all due respect, ma'am, I'm still not sure how good of an idea it was to aid them. You know they wish to use that thing against us. How cold. You would feel no guilt for orchestrating the patent's escape from their system. It was preemptive defense, ma'am. But they are far more useful in our debt than dead. They love us now. It's almost funny. Besides, there was never any risk to our soldiers. We had already hacked the pattern. All we had to do was trigger the reprogram and render it incapable of firing at human troops. Of course, ma'am. I just think that we let them off a little easy. Truly, you are a cold man. They've learned their lesson, the counselor smiled. Mercy is to be given to the weak so that they can respect the strong. End of story. Story number two. Eight. Pikes at Discipline. Written by John Falkirk. We are going to lose this war. You laugh. How could the round-eared apes ever threaten us, you ask? At the end of the first age, did we... Led by our father, King Atherindal, not bar them from Peninsula. 
Did we not sit atop the white wall, as thousands of them turned elsewhere, to flee the Jotuns? How could short-lived barbarians in the Iron Ring Biners ever compare to we, a mortal, few? We, who wear armor and wield gilded weapons forged of star bronze. You were not there, at Eagle's Ford. You did not see them in rank upon rank, firm in their discipline, absolute in their hate. Hate has made them strong. Not hatred of the Jotuns, which burned the old kingdom and gave their lands a thousand years of suffering and war. Hatred of us. Hatred of we, the owls, who, in their hour of need, turned them away. Hatred so great that when they raised this, the largest army that we have seen from them in an age, they marched it not to aid of the dwarves, their staunch ally against the Jotun, not on a path of conquest to secure their borders and rebuild their old kingdom. They turned it against us for revenge. They respect the Jotun, their enemy. They loathe us. Do you know what they call us? They call elves three knives, one for each year, and one in your back. At Eagle's Ford, we saw their hate laid bare. Our warriors advanced to the edge of the ford in loose order. We loosed volley after volley of arrows into their army on the other side of the ford. They stood in tight order, perfect targets. Or so we thought. Then we learned why they dead our shafts. They stood their ground, unmoving until our first volley reached the peak of its arc. Then as one, they locked their great kite shields together, the front rank creating a wall of overlapping lumber, the others a ceiling. We loosed until our quivers ran dry. Then their formation parted. With true in fact, as their second and third lines advanced, their front line existed only to absorb our arrows. And absorb them, it did, with few casualties. Their second line contained their own archers, and as they let fly its own volleys, more spearmen in mail and gambeson came carrying those damned kite shields came forward. They marched across the ford. Our own front line could not easily retreat up the muddy slopes, for our shields had to remain forwards, and walking backwards in such terrain was impossible. Retreat had not been a part of our plans. Their disciplined ranks, in close order, smashed into our loose formation, while each of our warriors may have been more skilled. Indeed, ours showed a vast superiority in skill, as was expected, and made no difference. In their tight formation, they could work together. One of our warriors would strike at one of theirs, only to be thrust at from two other directions with spears, while the human being attacked needed only to parry. The fight on the bank was short and one-sided. Our front line fell back to join our second. Our warriors drew closer together to mimic the demonstrably more effective tactics of the humans. Gone was our mobility. Our grace lost to a tight formation. The next line of humans marched forward across the ward. The spearmen parted to let them pass, and they formed tight ranks above the banks. 
they held long pikes. There were more humans in this new formation than elves in our entire army. Each wore a helm, a hauberk, and a gambeson, like the others, but unlike the others, also a caress of steel, made in a dwarven style, but clearly by human smiths, as the humans feel no shame in learning the crafts and techniques of others. Then came the words, a single harsh-barked order, Level Pikes! And down came the spearheads, eight ranks deep, they advanced on us, calling out, Huzzah! On each step, the advance was slow, even, and steady. They did not break their formation with a rush, as our warriors would have, and that wall of spearheads, which extended so far beyond the line of the enemy that our swords could not reach them, slaughtered us. We had long since lost sight of the fort itself. Our first warning that more humans had crossed were the panic shouts of the warriors on our flanks of cavalry. Human cavalry to our flanks. Human cavalry to our rear. We were cut off. Fewer than a third of us were still fighting at that point. We were beaten. We surrendered. A human officer pulled me out of the mob that we had been herded into. The pikemen stood in a circle and around our beaten pan. The order came again. Level pikes! You will not show mercy. We are prisoners, I shouted. Show their mother and dolls mercy, the officer ordered, and the circle of pikes closed in. I'm the last of the army, had Eagle Sword. They allowed me to live to deliver a message. We are coming for you, O oh gilded king. You once laughed at our short spans when your endless lives are cut short. You shall be forgotten. You once laughed that we were good at forgetting our history. Your halls shall burn. Your kin will die. Soon no one shall remember you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1353. Story number one. Eat or Be Eaten, written by British Tea Company. There was a pair of hungry eyes that stalked the Terran pack through the stinging cold, bestial and ravenous the creature may be. It was nothing if not cunning. It was the apex predator of this world, the legendary creature where the natives reviled as a monstrous housebawn. Weighing several tons and fully fleshed with sharp claws, massive fangs, and layers of hardy flesh and sinew, the beast was physically apt as it was intelligent. It had bided its time well. The fauna of this frozen planet was unforgiving. Savage felines, chomping lizards, and even aggressive herbivores existed in almost every nook and cranny. The Terrans were tough. But not so tough, though they had slaughtered many predators. The hunt only made them weak. They had no natural shells to protect themselves with, only fashioned ones, which now were cracked and damaged. Their claws and teeth were only a few inches thick, and it didn't even belong to them. Their most fearsome aspect, those hunks of metal which spewed fire and smoke, were now no longer operational, burned out after prolonged use. The Terran pack had numbers, something that should be a non-factor, 
There were many packs on this world. Many of them could hardly challenge the beast. It took its time once more as the Terrans entered the deep forest. At the open plains, they would see it coming. Here, in its own home, where the thick foliage and falling snow made visibility difficult, it would not be caught so easily. The Terrans were stopping now. Where fire and flame would have dispelled many lesser creatures, the beast knew better than to fear the light and heat. As the Terrans sat around the campfire, squawking and communicating together, it was then that the beast knew that this was the opportune time to strike. The pack leader had sat himself at a vulnerable position. His highly decorated shell of fur made his status obvious. Whereas the beast would normally be cautious about attacking most pack leaders, it wasn't so hesitant when it saw this leader and his less than dazzling stature. Lunging out from its hiding spot and charging with all of its hunger and bloodlust, the beast bolted towards the Terran pack. It weighed several tons compared to the most measly few hundred pounds of these apes. Jumping high, it lunged straight at the pack leader. The pack leader was fast, but only fast enough to save himself from being flattened by the beast's weight. Snarling, saliva dripping, the beast hissed and roared at the pack leader, who took out its claw. Unlike the rest of his pack, his claw was several feet long. The beast pranced around, carefully checking its flanks as the Terran pack leader stepped to the other side of the fire and faced away from the beast. His pack was nervous now, waving their claws at him. If he attacked now, they would break. Then he could hunt the rest of them at his own leisure. Leaping over the flames, the beast lunged again at the pack leader. Instead of freezing or even fleeing in fear, the pack leader rushed straight at the beast. For a split second, the beast was confused, until it realized that the rest of the pack was rushing at him as well. As his claws came to slice in the pack leader in two, it felt several thunderbolts of pain strike at its side and flanks. The Terran pack sank their claws into his body, each and every one of them being a painful flesh wound. The Terran pack leader swung his own big claw right at the beast's paw, severing the lemon tiny. Even on only threes, the beast was dangerous. Rolling over, it would have flattened two of the Terran pack members if they weren't so quick. It struggled to stand up again as it roared, spat, and clawed. But it was no use. Some of the bolder Terrans continued to cut it with their claws. In the distance, the Terran pack leader ripped off a tree branch and began to shave it with his claw, sticking it in the fire, and the leader plunged the flaming stick into the beast's face. Roaring and wailing with pain, the beast's single paw lashed out. It nicked the pack leader's chest just a little bit, leaving trickles of blood. But this only made the leader more determined. He stamped forward, driving the flaming stave into the beast's face even harder, until he quite literally poked one of its eyes out. The bigger terror of the pack got up and the beast's back and placed a boot on its head, stomping once, twice, thrice, and a few dozen times. The beast's teeth came falling out, one by one, its one tongue pierced by its fangs. All the while... Its paws and flank were harried by the stinging claws of the other Terrans. 
blinded and numbed with pain. The beast gave an animalistic groan. It felt several paws touch its underbelly. Horror struck it as it felt two dozen hands and a dozen voices grunt and flip it over. Its underbelly, unguarded by any muscle or thick fur, was now wide open. You're hungry, boy, aren't you? Sergeant Dusk asked the animal as he circled his prey. His squad, unkempt as they were from the countless animal attacks, still had a fire in their eyes. Everyone was tired. Most of all, they were hungry. Eat or I'll be eaten. I get that. It's how the queen bitch of nature works. Eat or be eaten. Thing is, boy, you ain't no predator here. We are. My bare-assed half-gorilla ancestors were busy poking mammoths to death while you were still fish with legs. You think you're dangerous with your claws and teeth. I got two things. My crew... And just how damned hungry I am right now. The beast continued to gasp and yell in agony as the Terran surrounded it. Knives coming out to prepare the death blows. Cut this thing open. We'll need the fur. Make a bigger fire, boys. It's been 36 hours. And right now, we all want to eat. End of story. Story number two. It never gets old, written by Old Full. This human specimen was quite interesting. The high scientists thought as their ship exited the atmosphere of the planet the locals called Earth. It was clearly dying, which was odd. No race in the galaxy has ever had anything or anyone die. This one appeared to be dying simply from getting old. But that's impossible, the high scientists thought. It never gets old. As the saying goes, testing this dying creature his crew had kidnapped from the Earth world, it was clear the being's cells were forgetting how to regenerate, like a star running out of fuel. An unthinkable and amazing discovery that beings actually die. The high scientist decided to try and infuse a small reprogramming nanovirus to the DNA, so the cells would always replicate and replace any damaged ones. The creature immediately showed signs of improvement. The attempt was regrettably completely successful. He awoke in a strange room, feeling better than he'd felt in 40 years. It only took a moment for him to realize he wasn't alone. He was surrounded by strange, alien creatures. Without hesitation, he reached out to the first one with a deadly punch. The double wet spat sounds echoed in the chamber. As his fist hit the creature, and the creature hit the wall and stood down, dead. The other creatures all tried talking at once, but he couldn't understand them. He only knew that he had been taken by aliens, and it was time for payback. He jumped off the table, a roundhouse kick taking off one of the creature's heads, and jumping a sidekick, sending another through the wall, basically red mist. The last creature left dived for the button and hit it just before it was crashed by a devastating axe kick that left the massive dent in the floor and a rather large wet spot. The button beeped a few times ominously before a massive robotic arm blasted through the wall. 
even bigger than our unknown protagonist. Four of the robot's ten arms grabbed his four limbs and held them in place, straining against the mighty man struggling against it. The robot leaned in and asked, What is your designation, human earthling, so that I may record whom I killed? The human glared into the robot's face and squinted. Another fist shot out suddenly behind the man's beard and punched the robot in the face, making it let go of him. The beard fist grabbed the robot by the neck before snapping the head off. The human said, I am Chuck Norris. I heard that he then kicked the robot so hard that all the robot could do was grab his foot and drag Chuck Norris out of the spaceship with him crashing through the walls, eventually crashing back to Earth. And Chuck Norris stepped out of the wreckage wearing a new cowboy hat that he'd made from the robot's head. The camp counselor glared at the young Mytox and said, Am I telling the story, or are you? Mytox looked sheepishly at the camp counselor. Him and the other boys are out there, staying out in the spooky woods of their forest planet tonight, camping. It's scary there, but their parents insisted that scare camp was a fun time. The scary ghost stories are the best in the universe. The camp counselor glared around the campfire at the young boys at trucks and asked, Anyone else want to chime in with some Chuck Norris facts? One small boy raised his hand. The camp counselor said, By all means, uh, let's hear what you know. I, um, I heard that Chuck Norris once stopped a volcano erupting by kissing it on the cheek, the little boy said quietly. Ha! <laughs> Another boy said. I heard he once punched a Zulfur and destroy ship, and it instantly fused into a micro-black hole and evaporated within a planked second. Oh, yeah? Well, I heard that he once saved an Earth from the Quartan invasion fleet by punching space-time so hard and fast that he created a wormhole that sucked the whole fleet in and dropped them into the galactic supermassive black hole, another boy said, grinning. And, and, I heard that Chuck Norris could eat just one lace potato chip. All the boys in the camp, counselor, stared at slack-jawed at the youngest boy, who just said that. Then they all laughed and laughed. Oh, Yuxty, that was funny, the camp counselor said between fits of laughter. Everyone knows that's impossible. After a few minutes, the laughter died down, and in the ensuing silence, a sound was heard. The sound of a single potato chip being eaten in the distance, echoing off the mountains like a sound of a million drum sets being stepped on by a giant. The boys all snapped their multitude of differently shaped eyes towards the camp counselor, who looked around in sheer terror and said, Uh, uh that's enough Chuck Norris stories. Uh, maybe we should all get some sleep now. After the boys left, the camp counselor attended his resignation and retired. No one has heard from him since. It never gets old. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1354. Story number one. Bartender. Written by Weirdo 5255. Well, little Hennen, human is pronounced human, said the woman as she sipped at a drink. The two, Yehan, looked at her for a moment, not sure what to make of her interruption. What do you think? asked the larger of the Yehan as he raised and dropped his sword onto the bar. 
attempting to replicate his supposedly dramatic entrance. The woman looked down at the sword and then at the large warrior creature. Impressive. She took another sip of a drink and turned back to stare into its depths. The two fanged and clawed warriors once again looked at each other in confusion. Are you not female? asked the one holding the sword. I am. Now will you leave me alone? she asked the woman. You should be an ah, human female. I fought in the duels and took the sword of the Alpha. Now I am the leader of the Yen in the city. The woman nodded. Good for you. Uh, now uh, will you let me drink in peace? she asked. You! The large warrior slammed the sword into the bar again, cracking the old wood. The woman lifted a glass off of it and lazily looked down at the damage. You should quiver in fear. I am the Alpha, shouted the Yuhun. The woman sighed and glanced over at the bartender. An older member of its species, one who had lived in the city his entire life. Were you this stupid when you were a kid? she asked. The bartender let out a low, amused warble. His feathers and claws smoothed out. I'd like to say no, but uh, humans are an odd lot. I'll look the other way if you want to teach them something. The woman chuckled. The young Alpha looked between the human and the older member of his species. Old man, why do you patronize this weakling? I command you to tell her why she should be in awe. The old bartender laughed, his warble coming almost a high-pitched squeal. Alpha, you may hold the sword, but a fool is what you are. I will not follow this frivolous order. The young Alpha raised the sword and pointed it at the older and wiser member of his species. Put down the sword, muttered the woman. The Alpha glanced back at her and bared its fangs. She sighed. All right, I warned you. Raising the glass to her lips, she finished most of the drink until only a few drinks of the dark liquid remained. Taking the glass from her lips, she swirled it for a moment, as if deciding to order another drink. In a flash of motion, she threw the glass, hitting the young Alpha in the face. It shattered, spraying alcohol and glass over him. The young creature let out a squawk of astonishment and brought his sword around to slash at the woman, but she was already gone. Swinging around, the Alpha looked for her, only to see the wooden bars of a chair a moment before they hit him. Stunned, the young Alpha collapsed onto the bar and tried to get his footing back. He was a seasoned and trained warrior. This paltry creature should not have been a threat. Here you are, shouted the woman, and she slammed a fist into his manhood. The young Alpha keened and let go of the sword. It fell to the floor with a clang. Everyone else in the bar who had gone silent at the exchange turned back to the drinks and conversation. In less than five seconds, it was over. Leading over, the woman picked up the sword, grunting under its weight. Hefting it, she set it on the counter. This is worth another drink. He spoiled my mood, she said. The old Yunnan nodded. Indeed. Taking her drink, the human female strode to another section of the bar, ignoring the alpha completely. Getting to his feet, the alien groaned and slowly stood back up. What was that? asked the young Alpha as he retrieved his sword. The older member of his species smiled. Humans have a phrase. It's called fighting dirty. She, she did not even take my sword, he said. 
Humans don't not care about an honorable fight, more the propriety of the encounter. To a human, all that matters is that in the end, they are standing, and their opponent is not. The young elder's feathers wilted at that. That is terrifying. Thankfully, they don't like to fight. The humans win every fight they get into, so the challenge for them is to resolve everything through words. At least then, it is a competition. Being on that, young Alpha. The Alpha glanced over at the human, and then his eyes widened as he noticed how many other humans were in the bar. Why are so many in here? he asked. The bartender smiled. I serve drinks they like. I've usually got around ten or twelve of them in here at any time. Now, uh, young Alpha, as tradition would dictate, you came here to demand tribute, yes? Asked the bartender. The Alpha paled and looked around the room again. Um, no, 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 I, I, I don't think I will. You sure? Asked the old bartender. The Alpha glanced back at him and then at the humans. Oh, uh, I'm sure. End of story. Story number two. Great Bitter Lake. Written by LG Father Anthracite. Have you ever been to a human colony world? I highly recommend you go. It's, uh, different. You see, when most species decide to populate a planet, they gather resources and materials. They interview interested applicants. They create a plan, do a site survey, transport materials, build infrastructure, develop a town with prefabricated homes, and shuttle in new inhabitants along with a garrison of soldiers, just in case. Agriculture starts after a few atoms of soil development, and after five to ten atoms, the place is basically self-sufficient. How the Weckley use anti-grav to scoop up giant lumps of dirt and rock out and just drop a prefab city into place. It's ridiculous, but they have a three-day startup, where every new resident gets assigned a job and dwelling. And then the whole thing just winds up and keeps ticking. But humans, they can't be bothered with any of that. After they decide to populate whatever brood for second rock they want, a general announcement is made. Coordinates, registration fee, and environmental conditions. That's it. No site survey. No plan. No material. No doubt. Just thousands of humans burning across the black to get to a new spot. Oh, they do get parcels of land assigned to them, so there's no fighting. At least, on garden worlds. But these are humans we're talking about. You know what they say. If a human can secure an atmosphere, it secures a home. I've seen those squishy little bastards living in subterranean complexes, on large asteroids, under plasteel domes, on airless worlds. Hell... I've actually been to one of their floating cities in the gash giants of Quinn's Star. It's always the same with them. A new rock opens up, and they come in on full burn, grab the land, and start building. Local resources, handmade habs, made out of biomatter or rocks. Hell, they even figure out how to build out of the dirt and grass. A hundred clicks from their nearest neighbors. No doctors, no supply depot, no help. They just ride out into the black, find a spot to land, and start making the place theirs. No real organization, no support, no backup. Just bone and muscle versus a whole planet. And the little Griggs do it too. Tame whole worlds, one batch at a time, one human at a time. 
You would think that this kind of person who did that just left everything to go live in the dirt. They'd be a little, um, antisocial. And, true enough, some of them are. But most of them would invite you in and feed you dinner and give you a place to sleep. It's not uncommon for people from wide areas to get together once a month or so, check in with each other, trade goods, have a meal. If you're lucky, someone's got some sort of still running, and almost all of them sing, play music, or dance. Those are fun nights. If you ever get a chance to go to a human colony world, do it. If you get the chance to go to a meetup on a human colony world, don't miss it for the world. They always have a name for them too, like the Grays Mountain Homesteads or the Grebo Plains Family Collective. Apparently, it's tradition for mirth. If you ever need to kill a millicycle, look up the Great Bitter Lake Association. Humans will build a society anywhere. Everyone knows that humans get attached, pack bonding or whatever, but you deliver supplies to a colony world, spend a few weeks helping out the locals, You'll never have to worry about clearance to land on that world ever again. I have been running tools and equipment to Debev 5 for about 500 of their atoms, and they greet me by name every visit, even if I've never met them before. Because humans don't just colonize planets. They don't just transport a section of their society to a new place, like a botanist grafting a branch to a tree. Humans dig into the soil with their blunt little claws, and they seed worlds with human tenacity, human willpower, human desire, human kind. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1355. Story number one. You Fight How? Written by Armored Cadian. Humans. When they finally discovered FTL and met the rest of the galaxy, were incredibly confused by how the rest of the galaxy fought. Apparently, every other race discovered, besides humans, was so adapted to using natural weapons that other forms of combat never occurred to them. Their idea of ship combat was usually some combination of stalking your target trying to be undetected, and boarding actions for quick strikes to vital regions of the target ship. They understood the concept of explosions from something malfunctioning, but due to natural weapons being so much more efficient, it never occurred to them to contain explosions to throw projectiles. Then came the humans, and boy, oh boy, were the first ships to try and prey on human ships ever surprised because it turns out that the sensors calibrated to try and detect incoming projectiles are more than capable of making a mockery of the rest of the galaxy's stealth capabilities. As a result, the would-be pirates were spotted almost immediately, and then shot. This unknown phenomenon of being damaged from a distance spooked the pirates badly enough that they fled right away. Eventually, these stories got around after this happened to enough ships. The galactic community asked the humans about the phenomenon. Below is the exact transcript recorded from the Senate. Human Ambassador David Smith addressing Senator Zor Flug. D. Smith. So, uh, what exactly are you asking about our ships? Zor Flug. 
How do they inflict damage on other vessels without boarding? They just, uh, shoot enemy vessels? Please explain this shoot concept to us. Our translators seem to be having issues with the term. We point a cannon at the target and uh, fire a projectile at it. I, I don't understand why this is a discussion. Everyone knows what a gun is. What's the big deal? Could you please elaborate on what a cannon or a gun are? Are you fucking with me right now? How could your species possibly make it to space without knowing how to use a standard weapon? No, we are most certainly not trying to mate with you. What do you mean by a weapon? Is this ability to attack at range one of your natural Terran fighting styles? In a manner of speaking, uh, yes. Um, humans have long history of throwing rocks at things that we want dead. You throw rocks to fight? That sounds incredibly inefficient compared to just smashing your opponent with your fists or disemboweling them with your claws. Well, um, just a rock thrown at normal human strength isn't that a factor, but um, that's why we invented technology that lets us throw them with increasing speed, power, and distance. Guns are just using a contained explosion to throw a metal projectile a great distance at a target. No different from how a spaceship moves, really. This technology means that natural strength doesn't matter, but how do you determine the strongest then? Well, uh, there's a saying that God made man, and that Samuel Colt made them equal. Uh, that's a famous gun manufacturer from our history, by the way. I see, um, I think we have discovered quite a lot. I need some time to digest these discoveries. Oh, no kidding. Transcript ends. Shortly after the Senate meeting, the concept of guns eventually spread throughout the galaxy, but humans remained the undisputed master in their use. No races dared to pick a fight with humans after that. End of story. Story number two. All the humans written by Teller of Tall Tales. I sat and glided the human's living room as he prepared some kind of food in the kitchen. He hummed a soft tune as the clink and clack of utensils and pots spilled the room. I shifted my weight on the couch, a device for resting not meant for my physiology. According to Clyde, I wasn't dissimilar in appearance to the human world's albatross, if it had weird scraggly arms instead of wings. Clyde shuffled from the kitchen in his bathrobe, graying hair cut neatly near the top of his head. The skin around his face wrinkled from many of what he called a good laugh or cry, though I had no idea the meaning of those words. Clyde set a plate of thinly sliced fish on some sort of grain in front of me before sitting down with a plate of brown, red and yellow in blobs and odd shapes. Before I ate the uh, sashimi Clyde had prepared, I curiously asked, Human Clyde, uh, what is on your plate? He paused with a cube of red halfway to his open mouth, quickly closing it as though not to show his teeth too long. Gesturing with a multi-pronged utensil to each item, he stated, Eggs, potatoes, toast, and steak. He picked up the red cube of uh, steak and stuck it in his mouth, chewing slowly and thoughtfully with his eyes closed. 
I paid him no more attention as I picked up the piece of sashimi and set it on my beak, closing it and mimicking Clyde's actions as opposed to my usual glut. My eye membranes flicked back the moment I closed them as flavors I'd never encountered danced across my tongue. I couldn't stop myself as I masticated the sashimi and grabbed another piece, repeating the process until my plate was empty. I felt satisfied. Even after such a small meal, I felt that I could eat no more. Clyde mopped up his plate with a piece of toast before stuffing it in his mouth and setting his plate on the table. I appreciate the visbeaker. You know us old guys don't get company other than each other. Clyde stated amicably, stretching his long arms and wrinkled hands upwards as his joints creaked softly. I borrowed a human expression, nodding as I chirped my reply. Well, there's not many humans in the settlement, and I will admit, I find how varied your cultures are from human to human an interesting prospect. Clyde nodded softly and stroked the floppy green hat on its stand atop his small side table with a soft smile, gazing into nothing. Boss military men are like that, proud of where we came from. We take it everywhere with us as a reminder of home. He trailed off and looked down, wiping his eyes before saying, uh, my, my apologies. Uh, I, I get reminiscent of home. I nodded softly. I could tell that the human was struggling with some great weight upon his shoulders. I felt an odd thing in my chest and approached the human, placing my hand on his shoulder and patting softly. You do not need to apologize. However, I need to go to the vendors and pick up the things for the day. I felt that twinge again as he nodded, and I left for the market. The street was oddly quiet this morning as I took up my basket and began my walk to the market. I found myself humming the tune Clyde had been as I turned the corner through the main road. I froze. Scalvians, hundreds of them, if not thousands, in their silence. Hovercraft, floating down the main road and breaking off in perfect unison to invade the streets. How, how, the, the defensive barrier! I mumbled to myself. Then one of the Skevianists in the foremost craft turned, looking straight at me as its ugly diamond-shaped head and four heat-sensing eyes. I stumbled backwards and ran, dropping my basket, my scared mind lamenting its loss as I clumsily ran away from the Sculvian hovercraft. But I could hear it, the whistle of the vehicle picking up speed. They were going to kill me. Sculvians never let potential threats survive. I tried for Clyde's door just as the hovercraft rammed into me. I felt my ribs break as I was slung to the side. The plasticrete pavement, smooth and cold against my face. I coughed and purple leaked from my beak. Blood. I was kicked over on my back and a scalvian pointed its kinetic blaster at my face, my eyes staring down the deadly little hole at the end. The PA system squealed and the scalvians looked up. That melody that Clyde had been humming began an instrumental, and soon... A human voice started to sing. Biting soldiers from the sky, fearless men who jump and die, men 
who mean just what they say, the brave men of the Green Beret. A deafening thunderclap echoed down the street, a chunk disappearing from the Scalvian's head in a spray of opaque goop. The Scalvians turned towards the gunshot as another rang out, another Scalvian falling to the ground and revealing my savior. Clyde, armor slung over his bathrobe, floppy green hat perched atop his head, wooden stocked magazine fed rifle tucked right into his shoulder as he swung the barrel onto the third Scalvian, pulling the trigger and removing a chunk from their head, dropping them to the ground. The fourth Scalvian shared his fellow's fate as he hit the Blastocrete. Clyde turned as more hovercraft began to come down the street. He raised a hand with all fingers extended above his head and dropped it, pointing at the hovercraft approaching rapidly along the almost deserted street. To say the scream of the rocket launcher was loud would be an injustice as the Hellion anti-convoy missile flew over Clyde's head, impacting the middle of the column and detonating. The wash of heat and pressure overwhelmed me, and I lost consciousness. My hand shook violently for a moment as I set the pen down and reclined in the human hospital bed. I'd been writing down the events of the last week as best as I could remember them for a while now. There was something odd that day that it all started. The invasion was not repelled by a formal army. Rather, Clyde and many, many of the human veterans fought tooth and nail for our little colony. While many of us non-humans had been ill-prepared, believing the defensive barrier to be invulnerable. The human veterans stockpiled weapons, ammunition, ordnance, and medical supplies, and all of it was manned by men in their late seventies. I closed my eyes and laughed softly, the feeling relieving some of the weight I didn't know I felt. <laughs> Crazy old humans. I owe them my life. End of story. I just want to thank the T5 patrons and channel members. Bob the Dragon, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Astray of the Dreamer, Trigan95, Fjordigiol, Meridian117, Alithia, Jordan Buxbaum, Angry Marine, Albarden Gasta, and Barky. Thank you very much. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.